A word to the wise. We are an explicit podcast tackling content with adult themes and whatnot. This month, we're talking about Jeff Vandermeer's Born. We'll talk non-spoiler for the first 10 minutes or so at the top if you haven't read it. Welcome to Words and Whiskey Short Pours, a monthly podcast where we have a fun time discussing fictional worlds and the people that create them, all while boozing just a little bit. My name is Cross. And I'm Adam. And we are here today to talk about the magnificent book Born by Jeff Vandermeer. I am obviously not joined by PJ today. I am joined by my and PJ's longtime friend, Adam, also another castle on Twitch. We play yep. games typically on Wednesdays. Yes, that is that is true. We've done... Yeah. We've done quite a few, all in all. This is the second time that I've appeared on one of your podcasts. It's but true. I think this is the first time I've been in the main feed. I think the other this one was a Patreon show. Also true. The Patreon show will eventually become public, but we're still working okay. on iconography on that. But yes, this will be the first time appearing in the main feed. Yeah. So I'm very excited for that. No. Be beyond this very fine show right here. You know. Yeah. Talking I'm to- super excited. I don't know. I'm excited. Yeah. It's, it's going to be, it's going to be fun to, mm. to kind of do, you know, it's, it's one of those things where obviously I've known you for a long time and we've, we've talked many an hour. We literally just talked for almost an hour about <laughs> WandaVision and the state of the MCU at large, not WandaVision. Fuck. You did, you did that there then too. <laughs> Dr. Strange and kind of the, the MCU at large, but yeah, we can obviously talk forever. So, But today we're going to be talking about Born by Jeff Vandermeer. And before we get into kind of spoilers, we wanted mm-hmm. to take a second to just kind of talk about the book at large. But before we do that, I want to talk about what we're drinking. Adam, what are you having today? I am very excited because I'm going to construct it in front of your eyes as we ho, sit ho, ho. here. Yes. So, gosh, I want to – I'm going to try not to spoil anything in my instructions here. So, Mord – right mm-hmm. in in born giant bear okay so i wanted to do a drink called the mord and i the only stipulation was that it was brown basically. okay <laughs> so i texted one of our good friends mr timothy pearson and mm-hmm. was like you have a fancy book of cocktails do you have anything that has like maybe spiced rum because i'm a i'm a rum kiddo mm-hmm. and he threw at me a drink called the cuba libre Mm. Which is, as far as I can tell, a fancy rum and coke. And by fancy, I mean you add lime. <laughs> so that's it, what we're doing. <laughs> it is It is basically a fancy rum and coke, which is great, you know? like it's. Uh... And I'm like, you know what? <laughs> rum and coke is my favorite that has my coke in it. <laughs> no, rum and coke is my favorite, so we're going to do it. So I've got a Cuba Libre, which is spiced rum, coke, and lime. Exciting! So very good. I wanted I wanted to do something a little bit more fancy because this this show is very fancy. We, but we tend on fancy. Yes. Yeah, it's really difficult to find a spiced rum drink that isn't tiki or like coffee. Yes, and and tiki is always going to be a lot more complex than than a lot of other things because you're going in the realm of where spiced rum was popular, right, or was popularized in in yeah. different cases. So. And I really didn't want too much fruit. I was I, mm-hmm. I kind of wasn't on the fruit train, so yeah. Nice. So we're just doing a Cuba Libre. Sweet. What are you fo- are you following that up with anything? We we call them back half beers. If you have a follow up beverage, oh, do you want to know? 
Yes, we want to know. I we sent want you to know a picture earlier. Oh, I'm very aware, but it has to be so, shared with everyone else. I was at the liquor store looking for the mm-hmm. shots for the Devil's Cut we just did. Yep. And I found spiked Mountain Dew. Yes. Like, so I have a <laughs> regular spiked mm-hmm. Mountain Dew and also a Baja Blast spiked Mountain Dew that I will be having Excellent. later. So. That'll be the back half beer. I also have more Coke and can make another Cupa Libre if I want to. So Cool. Yeah, very exciting. That's very fun. Good stuff. What do you got there? I am having a drink that I've had on the show before. Nothing crazy fancy. I was trying to think of something to do for the book. I think I'm going to come up with something for Dead Astronauts when we get there. But for now, I'm just going to... I'm, I'm having a Manhattan. Did I did I pour a regular-sized Manhattan? Absolutely not. I made a double because I accidentally fucked up my vermouth ratios. So this is six ounces of booze. That is <laughs> that quite is, a bit. I'm going to be sipping it very slowly. So I'm, I'm very excited to be drinking that over the course of the show. For anyone who doesn't know, actually, I should correct myself. This is not a regular Manhattan. This is what's called the Manhattan Perfect. The Manhattan Perfect is two ounces of rye, half ounce of dry vermouth, half ounce sweet vermouth, two dashes of Angostura bitters. Not crazy. So it's, it's a pretty easy cocktail to make, chilled, yeah. stirred. But... It's very tasty. I do prefer it over the regular Manhattan. To follow that up, because I'm a moron, I grabbed a Sycamore Brewing Co. Best Buds IPA. It it has, of course, the little like percentage, so it's it they're like blazed little buds okay. with, with red eyes. But it's got the alcohol percentage on the bottom, right? And seven point four twenty percent. That's smart. That's, that, a, that's a good way to do it. Perfect meme. Ten out of ten. No notes. So I bought it, <laughs> and it's it's good. It's solid beer. Good. So that's good. That's good. So with that, we're going to move into the book summary real quick. And I'm just going to read that here for anyone who isn't aware of the book that we're talking about. Again, Born by Jeff Vandermeer. To give you just a brief summary, in a ruined, nameless city of the future, a woman named Rachel, who makes her living as a scavenger, finds a creature she names Born, entangled in the fur of Mord, a gigantic, despotic bear. Mord once prowled the corridors of the biotech organization known as The Company, which lies at the outskirts of the city until he was experimented on, grew large, and learned to fly and broke free. Driven insane by his torture at the company, Mord terrorizes the city even as he provides sustenance for scavengers like Rachel. Rachel goes on to find Bourne and a number of other things that kind of peel in so it there there's more to this of course but that is a teaser to at the very least give you a, a taste of the world our inciting incident of course is that she finds a little spore on mord named that she names born so we'll talk more about that but before we get into kind of spoilers or anything serious about about the book and kind of breaking it down what do you think what are what are some non-spoilery thoughts to predicate to introduce myself a little bit I love sci-fi books. I basically, at this point in my life, only read sci-fi books. And so this is kind of sci-fi. It is sci-fi. But it's not like spaceship sci-fi. So I, long story short, I liked it quite a bit. It kind of tickles a lot of my fancies that I that I do enjoy. And we'll get into that a little bit later. I've got, I've got some thoughts that I want to put out specifically about like his writing style. Like, Jeff, man, love it. Give me more. Yeah, you yeah, know. right. Guy's a god. Yeah, give it to me, Jeff. So I appreciated Jeff's uh, writing, writing style. style. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Quite okay. a bit. Yeah, and, yeah. We'll talk, and we'll talk about that a little bit more in the future. I've got Yeah. I got some, something very specific. I want to talk about it, but 
all. This this book is about 300 pages long, and it is beautifully written without words wasted, um, telling an incredibly intricate story that tickles, like, every fancy of mine in a lot of ways. I'll say that, like, you know, some questions go kind of unanswered, and that's because it's not necessarily the end of the story. It is kind of the end of this story, but it's not the end of the story of this world, which yeah. is something that Jeff does a lot of. He He likes to build kind of in, in other books and things like this, he builds a world and an environment that stories live in as opposed to you following, like, one character consistently. Yeah. You know what? I'm just going to say what I was going to say because yeah. it, it, it kind of has to do with that where he does a very good job of showing, not telling about his world where... So this is from the... It, it's from the viewpoint of Rachel, right? Rachel has lived in this world, Right. And yep. so Rachel knows things that we don't know, but oftentimes she'll talk about it. And so then we, we get to pick up on how this world lives based on context clues. And like, yeah, sometimes she just like explain things and how, how some things go. But I'm going to go on a little bit of a story, but we'll bring it back around at the end. So <laughs> I, I frequent a subreddit called Patient Gamers, r slash Patient Gamers, where you talk about games that are older than five years old. And oftentimes people will put their reviews of games that are older and for when, when they play them for the first time. So I read a review of the original Halo, Combat Evolved, that complained about at the start of that game, what happens is that you're literally just dropped into the middle of the action. You're not really told anything about how the world works. You're told that the Covenant were after you. You don't know who the Covenant are. You don't know like what Cortana is. You don't know really anything about the game itself. And it just like lets you exist in that world and that guy was complaining about it and i'm like that is great storytelling mm -hmm. like i don't need to be force-fed exposition all the time let me figure it out on my own it makes me feel smart to mm -hmm. figure out some stuff about the world and that is exactly what this book gives me and there's i guess a reason for that later in the book but yeah yeah there there is kind of an explicit reason near the end of the book that we'll we'll talk about once we kind of break into spoilers i just want to tag into that before we jump into kind of a little some spoiler thoughts maybe and get into kind of the meat of things but i i did want to kind of add an addendum to that saying that i think one of the things that's really done well throughout this book as well is this book is kind of written in epistolary style where we're almost like reading journal entries to some degree or like a continuous log of thought as we go through right as we're moving through this book we're we're basically being told the story by Rachel and her understanding of the world is also the only thing that we get. So the company might have a name. There might be names for other things. There might be more specific people who could like Wick could probably give us more in-depth knowledge about certain things. But because we're locked into Rachel's perspective and point of view for the, the duration of the book, it gives us a fascinating lens. And I think that's a testament again to, to Jeff's, writing and especially i want to i want to praise this before we go into any kind of spoilers or anything else or before we exit that but he nails a female voice as well like so good throughout the entire story the one thing that i i was literally gonna like bring this up a little bit later but i remember when reading catcher in, in the rye reading about a what's what's the word for it my, my brain isn't quite there. You don't trust the narrator. Unreliable narrator. Thank you. And that's kind of what we're getting. Not that Rachel will necessarily lie to us. 
as the as the reader per se but just the fact that she doesn't know anything it's exactly it's what you were saying is like we only know what she knows mm-hmm. and what she's willing to tell us so but yeah that's yeah. it's so it's so cool you know and she just gradually tells more and more and more and more and that's kind of mm-hmm. what's so interesting is this entire story is kind of like like you're tugging on a rope you're unraveling a sweater mm-hmm. as you're as you're kind of going through this story and the every like as opposed to chapters the fact that it's like what born did or like what was this or what happened yeah. next and that's your chapter header each time is like well i got to know what happens and so then yeah. you just you pull on that thread and you keep unwinding and God, it's it's one of the things that makes this book so confoundingly good. Yeah, no, it's just it's all getting those little clues about the world, like the little tidbits of like she says it so naturally, but she's like, oh, so like that's what this mm-hmm. is about, you know, or like I don't know. It's just yeah, it, it, it's just a cool thing to read, and it kind of keeps you engaged the entire time because it's just different from the way that you read, but. It, it also kind of reminds me, not perfectly, but a little bit of World War Z, which is one of my favorite books, because mm-hmm. it's, it's, you know, it's got the header and then it tells you the story. Now, yes, it's, a little, it's right. more connected than that, right? Because World War Z is a series of stories told from different perspectives. This is all from Rachel's perspective, but it's a kind of a similar idea there. Yeah, yeah, because it lets her jump around, you know, mm-hmm. to to the important parts that are relevant to the immediate moment mm-hmm. or that make it feel relevant. Because there are, there are moments in between that she'll go in and describe, you know, like a week passed or like this happened or like mm-hmm. we didn't talk for this long. You know, so you get you get a vague sense of the passage of time and that mm-hmm. you're really just kind of seeing highlights to some degree. It is there. OK, I want to get into spoilers, but I, I also want to just mention this is kind of a spoiler. At one point, she mentions wanting to write a book and like that she was never going to write a book, except for she literally wrote this book, which I think is amazing as like a meta joke of like the context mm. of creation, because that's, you know, a, a subtext inside of this book as well. Um, there's a there's another point that I want to talk about in kind of this term, but it gets into spoiler territory. So I'll wait for yeah. a sec. So. We'll break in for those of you who haven't read the book. If this did not do a good job of selling you on the book, I can't imagine what would. You just got to read it. it Go read it the is, book. I, I'm very lucky. I have a very rare signed edition that was actually gifted to me by Jeff that I am very, very happy about. And it is like my prized possession. It's right next to me. I was terrified. I haven't even. I This was the first time that I've read this copy physically. Man. Oh, oh God. I love this book. Okay. Anyway. Cool. With that, we're going to get into spoilers. So, get out of here if you don't want to hear spoilers. We don't want you. Just kidding. Come back. We don't want you. Come back after you've read it. Please. Please do. And I, I think I think you'll enjoy it. This book is fucking wild. Yeah. In a ton of ways. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, um, I, so, I had enough distance from the book because I had originally read it in 2018, I think. I think it was 2018. It was when I was working at Sprint and driving from Maple Grove to Edina every day. And so I listened to it the first time that I, I read it. And then I bought a copy and then I read it. So I'd, I'd had a couple of years. I re-immersed myself in the world when Dead Astronauts came out in 2019. And I read that and I fucking loved it again. So it'd been a bit. And I had forgotten some of the finer details that are in this story. And oh my God, it was, it's just, I'm trying not to make this just a rant praise review. And we'll talk about other things, I swear. But yeah. the, we could be spoilery about it now. The fucking ending? <laughs> like, uh-huh. God, wait, the wait. recontextualization. But. So which part? Because do you mean the like resolution or like the climax? 
The climax. The climax okay. specifically. The resolution is also good, of course, because that's kind of the next logical step. We'll get to that in a second, but... <laughs> Sure, sure. Yeah, I guess maybe we shouldn't jump right to the end. Let's start at the beginning. <laughs> you know, fair point. <laughs> maybe not. Let's talk about Mord, and let's kind of start where the story starts, right? Mord, this seemingly... When you open up this book, the first thing that you really learn about the world is that there's this giant fucking flying bear. Mm. And either you're in it in that moment, or you are fucking out of it, I think. It is one of the strangest things, and you're like... And then you kind of get a sense of it, and it feels very, like, Miyazaki, almost. Mm-hmm. Like, very Studio Ghibli, right? It's got that kind of, I don't, I don't even know how to describe it. Just the weirdness of it. Take um, Miyazaki, but make it bad. Not bad, not bad as in badly written, but bad as in like not pleasurable, right? Because a lot of Miyazaki is is like built to like make you feel good, like yeah. make you feel good about yourself. This it's is sort kind of different. Yeah, yeah. But no, I I see exactly what you're saying. Like, Mord is the first thing I bring up when I talk about this book to people. Is just like. It's it's a post-apocalyptic book. There's a giant evil flying bear, right? <laughs> and a and a small squid-like vase. <laughs> I don't even talk about Born. Yeah, actually, right. it's just like because like Mord is just such a thing, and about mm-hmm. like, okay, sure, it's it's kind of a shock factor thing because that mm-hmm. you're right. That's the first. That's one of the first things that like you hear about is the giant flying bear. Which, to be yeah. fair, my brain can't necessarily paint and point exactly how big he is. Huge, like I, massive, like many, many buildings, like rolls rolls into buildings and sleeps inside of them with like his head tucked up on a top floor. Yeah, I'm talking big. like, th- I, I was going like three-story buildings. Like yeah. what you'd see downtown, you know, something about that big. But Natalie was like, is he Clifford or is he Godzilla? And I'm like, oh, it's kind of something somewhere in the middle. But Yeah, he's massive but i i think i think of what's so fascinating and this is where again i think i get miyazaki is the fact that she finds born inside of mord's fur right and so it feels like it also feels like a wes anderson film in which board in like born could be or not born mord could be standing up and like arising from the ruins and you could just see like his fur going on the screen standing up forever i can just imagine like a loop of him like standing very slowly and it's so visual it's strikingly visual and that's kind of why i think he's huge because you know Mm -hmm. you can climb up on him and he doesn't notice you know yeah i imagine like shadow of colossus big like six story was gonna say that but yeah okay (laughs) yeah so because yeah they talk about how they often scavenge from mord and on mord Mm -hmm. because he like he lays in the company, they're the ruins of the company, and so like things get caught in his fur that, that are useful to everything else. So yeah. Mord. Mord. So fucking cool. And then he flies and like Yeah. What? <laughs> like just it's just a it's just a bonus fact, like Mord flies and then eventually he can't. And it's like Yeah, and that's one why thing can't that they he? didn't touch on is why he just suddenly couldn't fly. Why would Rachel know? They you know that's true. They did kind of mention it. Okay, but I'm I'm stepping away. You said why would Rachel know, but it's more like yeah. why wouldn't Jeff tell us? Because that seems to be like the, she they go into the company at the end, and that seems like something that they, they could have dropped some hints or something about about like why Moore doesn't fly or like the magician says a couple of things that are like 
suppose that it can't fly because like he just decided that he couldn't anymore there's some questions about like maybe there was damage on the inside of the company that's preventing him from flying there's some suppositions but there's no answer they did talk about after he lost his ability to fly there was Mm -hmm. a there was a lack of a hum Mm -hmm. humming noise that they had gotten used to and then then they noticed the absence of it and i Mm -hmm. think that's really one of the only things they mention about it yeah so it's kind of weird and distant we don't really know you yeah know, why so, or why not yeah Mord's interesting to say the least mm-hmm. so Mord is also the instigator for the story about born and born is gosh like what what a trip is born as a character mm-hmm. i i have a real tough time even like summing up my feelings but obviously he is the sort of root in a lot of ways you know tentacles and all of of the emotion of this story, in addition to Wick and and kind of the relationship that he has with Rachel and Rachel in general, our scavenger, of course, of which we haven't talked about yet at all either. But Bourne is just fascinating as far as it goes. And, and this is where the book, it took the step already with Mord, but it really confirms that this is like biopunk. It's it's a it's a post-apocalyptic future. Yeah, I guess I guess what were your what were your thoughts about Bourne himself and kind of the the initial introduction and characterization? Bourne is something I would like to know more about mm-hmm. and is part of the reason that I'm frustrated about Rachel as a as a narrator because I know we won't because there's 0% chance that she knows exactly what Bourne is, right? However, that's not necessarily true. We'll get to that in a sec. I realize I'm saying that a lot, but... So my initial thoughts on Bourne was like alien, right? Because, I mm-hmm. mean, they, they, they talk quite a bit about how he's different and weird and like makes colors and everything like that. And I don't know. He's the most interesting constant because you, I mean, the book's name born. So like we talk about him constantly, you know, and how he grows and everything like that. So God, what can't you say about born? Right. (laughs) It's, it's just so, it's so fascinating. So to, to kind of, I, I think it's important that we kind of talk about Bourne in, in kind of stages. And, you know, one of the things yeah. that I wanted to bring up is this this book kind of poses a question throughout the entire story about, like, parasites and symbiotes and kind of that that sort of reality on the world, on sort of the, the company. Are, like, the humans that are surviving, are they parasitic? Are they symbiotic? Can we work together? Are we always leeching on things? Mm-hmm. And Bourne is used as a way of of talking about that symbiosis i think and how a symbiote can turn to a parasite and vice versa and how it's hard to even parse that line and on top of that symbiote and and parasite comparison we also have he's basically a child like he right. and that's the even more direct allegory yeah it it's it was a very interesting read having a child who's growing up and like trying to teach him things in the very, in the same way that Rachel is trying to teach born things. Mm-hmm. So there's, yeah. there's one scene that I really like in, in this and it's the, the first time born speaks, you know, cause for the long, for a long time you consider born to effectively be a plant. And that's kind of how he's described in, in there, mm-hmm. but like he can move, he's a moving plant. And then just one day he talks and she's like, what the fuck? <laughs> you yeah. Know? Right. And so, but yeah, and then just like from from that time on, the way he speaks and the way he learns and everything like that is very equivalent to a child. They copy, they take words, and they use them. Yeah, 
where was I going with this? It's fine. <laughs> we'll get there eventually. Yeah. No, I, it's it, him, him as a child is, I think a fascinating bit of writing. And I think that to, to say like it is, it's incredible to see the way that he grows and adapts, right? Because the, the first time that he talks is, and we don't really understand this, but it's after he eats the kids that attack right. Rachel, right? And, and so that's when he first speaks, and it's kind of dicey. Yeah, and you're right, because that, that's very interesting, because we know that we have this this thing and that has the effectively intelligence of a five-year-old, whatever, mm-hmm. but it also has immense power. It's dangerous, you know, because we know that it killed those kids, but also we don't know how smart or how controlled it is from that point on, right? Mm-hmm. So this this could turn south very quickly, like if Bourne chose to, like, be evil, I guess. But, yeah, that, that's one thing that kind of always, like, kind of hangs over you is the fact that you know that he's dangerous and you know that he's learning, so... Yeah. yeah. To to throw a third metaphor in an allegory that we are going to be talking about a lot. This this story directly interrogates the can you love an android or can like an android be loved or what where's the line between an android and a human and right. where does that personhood blur, where does that exist? Yes, personhood. And I, I I use the term android because I think sci-fi does a lot of this and I think mm-hmm. this story does it better than just about any other story outside of maybe android streaming of electric sheep. And um, I mean the reason that it that it does it so much better is because a lot of times you you can look at an android and they're almost always built to be humanoid, right? Mm-hmm. And so like it's very easy to like look at them and be like, "You're a person," but this is like a shimmering, shape shifting vase thing with tentacles. It's mm-hmm. much harder to attribute like human characteristics to something like that. And so you're able to look at it and be like, "Is it an animal? You know, is it?" They they speak about this often. Is it a weapon? You know, what is it designed to do? It's not a human. It's not humanoid. So it's a lot harder to maybe assign personhood to it. Him, born. Yeah. And I I think that's what makes it so fascinating is that I I think you're right. A lot of the time, the other part of the Android equation is that it's built by people. And the people who built it are generally trying to evaluate it. right? Right. Like they're the ones trying to prove personhood to some degree. And so this is fascinating because there's the question of okay who built it eventually we kind of know that it came through but we don't really know its intent but there there is that kind of looming question of okay what exactly is born is born a person is should he be loved like a person or a child Mm -hmm. and yeah i don't know i i I really wanted to kind of pick your brain on the side of the kind of parentage thing of course because you are my friend with a kid um (laughs) token friend with a kid (laughs) token friend with a kid so i i guess your experience with kind of fatherhood raising a child how'd you feel about rachel's approach to born fun fun question did you read this before kiddo was born it was right around but yes i did i either read it pre-theo or i read it when he was effectively a sack of potatoes so (laughs) now that he's like his own being like his own thing he's no Um, longer a vase yeah yeah he's no longer a vase or a plant it, it it is different because you can actually see those parallels between kind of the stages of born into like a child because yeah for a lot of a kid's life when you're first like becoming a parent it's like this thing gives you no almost no positive feedback it lives to you just got to keep it alive 
it's going to eat and it's going to poop and it's going to sleep and that's about it. And so like it's kind of the thing with with Born is that it was it was just kind of there, you know? She doesn't have to keep it alive, but it didn't like do anything. So now that Theo's like he's walking, he's starting to talk and things like that, you know. There there is some, you know, equivalency there. It's a little bit accelerated in Born. Yeah. I mean, maybe it's not. Maybe it takes the same amount of time, but I, I, is no, I, the book. I agree with you. I think that it is kind of an accelerated timeline because we get through all the way to up to adulthood, right? We go through yeah. angsty teen. We go through kind of a bunch of different phases. The loss of childhood, the death of childhood when he protects Rachel from the Mord proxies. Proxy. Yeah. You you see a lot of parallels between Born and like how he's learning and things like that, but it's just so fast. You know, he very quickly outpaced my own child. I mean, Theo is one <laughs> and a half now. Mm-hmm. He's he's almost two actually. Where's the time go? But yeah, see, right. But I mean, yeah, born very quickly outpaces that. So, mm-hmm. do you think he gets speech because he eats the kids? I think there are two. So here's the thing. Here's here's what I'm not sure about, and I tried to pay extra attention, and I went and reread this today. So it's it's tough to parse whether or not he gets speech specifically from the children, but I think he does because I think that he also has to eat the brains of the kids in order to be able to internalize some of those things and senses in the same way that humans have them. Yeah. So I think so. I think that he has to eat the children in order to get the senses. Yeah, that makes sense. I didn't even think of that uh, about that beforehand, but like mm-hmm. you made the point where he doesn't speak until after he eats the kids. Well, it seems like spoiler alert, he he like absorbs them because they're not like truly mm-hmm. dead. And he kind of like he's able to like read their memories. Yeah, that's another thing that I definitely want to talk about because that's fascinating. Is... Because it, it, it kind of tackles some morality. So for those of you and who, religion. Who, who may not remember, whenever born consumes something he 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 absorbs it into himself and so he doesn't necessarily consider them dead because he he can feel them existing in himself and he can like see their memories and things like that so it's like what's happening you know and that's what's fascinating so there he he absorbs them right and like mm-hmm. he doesn't lose the body parts or mass or anything like that like he he retains it and like specifically this is this is shown through and again show not tell that's why this book is so good once again can't mm-hmm. praise enough definitely going to read some quotes but it it it's implied directly through the gray eyeballs eventually showing up unborn mm-hmm. that he ate the children that's kind of our, our sign mm-hmm. but i think it's also a sign that these people are still there and that he can pick through and comb through those memories right and so they are holistically a part of him which is also why he asks i think in near part the end of part 2 he's like i don't think anyone that i eat is dead i don't think they're dead i think dead is something different and that gets into this fascinating question about sort of the the way that like we eventually become one with nature again as like our bodies are consumed by the earth and we are then recycled into the next things that grow out of us right and that is sort of the question statement here as well i don't know you know what i mean and you can kind of start talking about like souls too like yes what is a person you know Mm -hmm. in in terms of that because we've discussed like what is a person in terms of like robots and stuff like that but also when Born consumes these people, and we know that, you know, they're people, like, he talks about the scavenger that he eats and things like that. He 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 seems to retain parts of them, like their consciousness and things like that. Is that, like, is that a soul? You know, how do we consider that? Like, what is, then, 
a person. I don't know. And and it's it feels very like that's that's fun. Part of the fun, fun of the part, uh, part. part of the pun cool. that is kind of interrogated once again by Jeff when Rachel gives kind of the conflicting of the ideas of like, well, no, they aren't because they can't make choices for themselves, right? Like he kind of implies that because their choice has been taken away, they're no longer people. And he's like, well, I don't, and Bourne's like, well, I don't necessarily think that's true. And this is another case of him kind of point poking at a like a religious argument of like predestination versus like free choice. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's like just another little, like all ugh, this book is so like at its core at its core. It's a great story. It's a fantastic story told in a wonderful world. And then if you just like, if you just pick at it a little bit, you're like, Oh my God, there's so much to this. Yeah. <sighs> And I think a lot of that, like, there's so much to this is because there's enough space between the stories mm -hmm. where, like, you can... It doesn't give you all the answers. He could very mm -hmm. easily have said, this is what happens when Bourne absorbs a person. He could very easily have said something like that. But right. he doesn't have to. We can make these, like, we can think about it on our own and we can just make, this is what we think, like... If it was cut and dry, we wouldn't like be having a conversation about it. We'd be like, "Oh, this is what it is," and then you know, we're not done. knowing creates tension. So the fact that we don't know yeah. creates tension for us because we're like, "Okay, but what happened there? Like, what was that?" And then he can like give us the little hints, right? This this book is not a horror book or a mystery book or a thriller book, no. but it is almost written like one in that way, where it's like these are core mysteries as to exactly what's going on, and so it has this kind of. I don't know. It it feels like when I when I read it this time, it felt foggy in a in a fun way, like in a good way. That was kind of the way that I that was the first word that came up. Like the world feels like it's just shrouded in mist. Mm -hmm. In a yeah. Yeah, it, it it's the fog of war and then he mm -hmm. reveals a little bit and you go you explore that a little bit and then you can see that and then you can make these connections with other things and it's just like I don't know. And then yeah. you you and then you recognize something from our world in there and then it makes mm -hmm. it it like gives you like a oh moment like right just like their discussion of the balcony cliffs and like the lobby is just like oh oh okay this is an apartment building this, this or, is an apartment or a hotel building. yeah, yeah. Mm, okay yeah sure and then just when they when they go into one thing that just never stuck with me was that there were people living in the company building like, the remnants of the employees were there, right? The cult, yeah. Well, uh, cult, whatever. It may have been a cult. Like, right. we don't know. That's kind of what yeah, yeah. yeah. But, like, when they go to the company building and they see, like, you know, tents and things like that, and, pe like, people had lived there. Mm -hmm. Like, it just, like, it's it's kind of abstract in a way sometimes. But then he likes to, like, sharpen the focus a little bit and be like, this mm -hmm. is something that could really happen. Mm -hmm. Like this is something that's real. We got our crazy flying bear guy over there. He's <laughs> right. That's probably not going to happen. But you know this desecration, this desolation, this like destruction of like civilization. This can happen. You know, at the hands of Amazon, right? Which is like kind of the the fun bit about the company, right? Like, yeah. He's not. He's not saying Amazon. He's just saying kind of. This is also a metaphor for climate change. This this episode should be called "This is a Metaphor" because, like, it is it is just like repeated metaphors and allegories and kind of moments and notes that are about all of these different things woven into again a tight three hundred pages. 
But the reason that it's such a tight 300 pages is that he gives you so much space to like fill in Mm -hmm. yourself. He gives you what you need to make, to like point you in a specific direction. And then Mm -hmm. you could just think about it. Like he he doesn't have to specify like what happened to the world. We know the world's gone to shit. We know Mm -hmm. this is how it is right now. That's really all we need. But mm-hmm. he, he is very nice and gives us a little bit of Rachel's backstory. It's true. It's true. Right at the very end. <laughs> but no, 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 no. He, like he gives us Rachel's backstory before. So he gives us some bits of Rachel's backstory in order to make the very end just hit you like a softball to the face. Right. You know? Yeah. Oh, man. And boy, does it. Because it's like the the thing is, is that she's missing a couple of years. Yeah. And at the same time that she says so, she's missing a couple of years, Wick you know, of whom we haven't talked about and we should definitely talk about because he is ultimately our android in the story, which is fascinating on a completely different level. Yeah. Did you we, also have, we also have talked about the magician before we really get to the end as well. Yes. So. Oh, we're, we're nowhere near that point. We haven't talked about the three dead astronauts and kind of the, the interesting thing there. There's so much to talk about. And I don't mean dead astronauts in reference to the book that is kind of a sequel to this. So I mean, maybe I'm, I'm not even talking about that. I'm just saying like there's there's something interesting there and the foxes and there's all kinds of things. Yeah, the foxes is something that's very interesting. And we we we've barely talked about the children, the Mord proxies. I know. The scavengers. <laughs> there's this just so book many is things. so good. OK, so getting into uh, we were talking about Wick briefly mm-hmm. and the the memory erasing kind of beetles, so, the memory beetles. So Wick is is Rachel's is Rachel's uh, partner both like in the balcony hills and sexually they talk about mm-hmm. that a couple of times so they, they fuck they, quite a bit specifically they, they I would fuck. like you yeah. you texted me about this earlier yeah. they did talk about making love at one point yeah i did i did go back and find yeah um, but they they talk most of the time they talk about fuck specifically yeah. which is very interesting but so yeah he worked at the company doing something and he currently is kind of a drug dealer and he gets things that way. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Just so we're all on yeah. the same page. Yes. Yes. So Wick is a fascinating character. And maybe maybe to wrap up part one for the most part, because we can really talk about the magician in part two and things like that. But yeah. to kind of capstone the intro to the book, the first kind of chunk, there's a complacency near the end of this between Rachel and Wick about like not talking about the elephant in the room, which is born, you know, at that point, they've Sometimes got kind literally of an elephant tension. No, well, it turns out that wasn't the real elephant in the room. There were two other elephants in the room that were stressing wick out. Right. They, but they at that really point, need to deal with these elephants. Yeah. There, there are three elephants in the room and no one's looking in the corners anymore. <laughs> Everyone's just staring at the door, mm. but you know, it, it, it was, it was fascinating to me because it, it felt like that same kind of like unspoken, tension that i like remember growing up with around parents in general and like if if they like had an argument or anything like it was just like you put it aside and it still like stresses you out to like encounter but you have things that you have to get done and that was that was fascinating from a relationship standpoint i just i really that was like was an attention to detail that i I loved and like a little i don't know lovely sprinkle they don't see eye to eye on born but the world has ended and mm-hmm. you really can't deal with it right now, you know? You gotta, <laughs> yeah. like, you gotta put your your brain power somewhere else, yeah? Mm-hmm. Right, right. When do when should we talk about the twist? Well, I think we can talk about it whenever, because I think it will impact conversation points throughout, okay. if that makes sense. 
because there's something that I wanted to to mention, but kind of before we got to that point is the first time I saw Fight Club, sure. I saw the last 30 minutes. Then I watched the whole movie again, and let me tell you how much that colored how I watched that movie, knowing exactly That's what fair. the twist was. Yeah. And so this second reading, knowing that there were points where Bourne was impersonating Wick and Rachel to each other, being able to see when it was happening and know when it was happening was like, it's so clear in hindsight. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. obviously, that is not currently Wick. That's, you know, Bourne pretending to be Wick because of the way he's speaking, because of, like, the way he's acting, things like that. But, like, if you don't... Like, my first read-through, everything was fine, you know? People are weird sometimes, but... Oh, yeah. fuck. That was... A kick in the face like when that came about was like oh shit yeah and that's like this book delivers twist on twist on twist on twist like that's kind of the other thing about it is like it's kind of the first twist that really gets revealed is that twist right mm-hmm. that's the kind of the first one that we get it's like oh so there are times when they weren't each other to each other and then yeah. there's that question of like for that brief briefest of moments of like did i fuck born like did i uh, fuck the equivalent of my child and that was yeah oof and it's uh, glad that that's confirmed that that never happened because that was an important clarification Correct. but then you can under you can also understand why wick felt so off put in those moments when like she would approach or otherwise because she probably thought he was talking to rachel mm-hmm. when rachel wasn't there and like when born wasn't there when she was out doing stuff it's just yeah ugh. and like there's there's hints there's hints all over the place where they're like oh i never said that and they and they put it up to like you know stress you know memory lapse stuff like that and it's like oh no they actually never said that and mm-hmm. it's like late i know i know later in the book they like they literally sit down and it's like okay what did you say in this moment it's like this is what i i said and they like put together like when they talk to who i know that was a that was a scene in this book but like like you take everything else in this story and then you add a mind fuck <laughs> Yeah, right. Like, right. Ugh, that was. I think that is the most. This is going to be the wrong term, but out of character twist, where like it doesn't necessarily match the rest of the vibe of the story per se. Sure. Yeah. Right. Where it, this is definitely like straight up like, uh, like horror, like aliens, like things like that sort of thing. Like, I don't know. There's a lot of things in this book that could edge on horror if you kind of leaned into it a little bit but i mean jeff doesn't and i kind of thank him for that but i don't think you've seen one of my favorite movies ever is it horror annihilation it kind of it's like sci-fi horror kind of kind of it's not even it is it is written by jeff vandermeer it was the book series that made him popular area x the the book is called annihilation should Um, i read the book and the movie is called annihilation you should read the book. It is different than the movie. Yeah, you could you could read the book, no problem. The books are great. I'm not going to spoil anything because the movie is, I would call it inspired by the book, but is not the book. Okay. But there are elements like this in that movie of where you're like, are you the person that I thought you were in that scene? Were you actually, and then like, you're just juggling in your head brilliant it's the same kind of mind fuck also my favorite working director alex garland so it was, it, it's like this confluence of things that i was just like this is a perfect movie yeah anyway i'm sorry yeah. it, it's it's like a rival level mind fuck if you liked rival you'd love annihilate it does have 
one horror moment in it that is genuinely terrifying in a way that nothing else has ever been and will ever be because it's so real. I don't know. I don't know. How, I don't know how else to explain it. It's not a scary movie. It is a. It's a skin crawl moment, if that makes sense. Like it's a. It's like horror. It's it's horror, but it's a horror that was been built up to kind of. Yeah, yeah. It's it's not jump scary. It's yeah. just unanticipated. Yeah. Yeah. Jump scares are bad. Gore. The movie is, bad. is very tense. The movie is very tense. Tense. Um, not a huge fan of. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a very tense movie. There's no question there. Like even the music makes it tense. Yeah. Anyway. I can really only, like, read <sighs> scary things. I can't sure. watch scary things. That's fair. Because you can put it down. Yeah, and that's that's a thing is just, like, I... <laughs> that is one thing. I could not read World War Z at night. I, I I couldn't do it. So that is one of my favorite books of all time, World War Z. It's fantastic. Everyone should go read it. So the impersonation is so brilliantly done and cleverly written because it creates this unspoken tension between them. And then also... It's born learning about them and like learning each of them. And then Born also says that like, oh no, I've talked to Wick. And Wick hasn't talked to Born, except for he does later. And yeah. then you're like, wait, was that Wick or was that Born saying that he was Wick talking to Wick? You know, like there's there's that mind fuck as well of like I don't actually think that mm. Born really spoke with Wick. Bo- Born pretended to be Wick to Rachel saying that he spoke like there's layers upon layers upon layers of mind fuckery Mm -hmm. and part of the only way that you can tell is because this happens after he gets injured and then you can kind of or the only reason that we start to be able to tell I should say is after he gets injured and that's when Rachel finally notices that he's like paler and stranger and that's like that's the change of when we we know and kind of understand that Bourne has potentially been impersonating that's right before it breaks so up until that point, he was also impersonating. But the point at which it becomes obvious and it's shortly thereafter revealed is after the attack. There's definitely two moments that you can tell exactly when it's born in, on Rachel's mm-hmm. side. And it's there's one where he just like appears at, at her at the foot of her bed. Yeah. And, and then there's one where I forget exactly what the uh, surrounding circumstances are. And I didn't take a note of it because I didn't know we were going to be talking this in depth about it. But I, she distinct, she distinctly says that she went to find Bourne and could not find him, and maybe yes. he had gone out. Right, right. And so, like that, that is one of those points where what I was talking about earlier, where she's like, I knew the twist. And I'm like, oh ho 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 ho, that's one of those moments. You. Mm-hmm. you know, yeah, that was. It was kind of like a, not slightly spooky, but like a kind of tingly like where's waldo of like trying to notice those things because mm-hmm. i knew they were yeah. happening you know yeah it it pays that that revisit and i would i would put it out there i'm not going to talk about it a whole lot but after reading dead astronauts this reread pays off immensely in ways that i never anticipated god yeah i'm excited Fuck. to read dead astronauts yes we'll we will there. definitely be reading that and recording that as well there. but okay so we talked about kind of the impersonation, of course, as we'd been discussing previously, but I did want to spend a little bit more time talking about Wick specifically. I feel like we kind of verged in and then dodged out real quick. But and and Wick also will touch on the magician, so we'll probably kind of free yeah. flow between the two because their relationship is kind of yeah. crucial to a lot of the story. They're kind of connected in a very important way. Should I jump to the end? Because I got a question like right at the end yeah, of Wick's I mean, story. Yeah, I mean... All of it's going to like feed back in. Okay. So I feel like the end informs so, the beginning. In the end of the book, 
because I remember I just read it, but it says something about finding pages of like diagrams of Wick's face. What does that imply to you? So, A, Wick is kind of a, a biotech as well, right? Mm-hmm. So, like, there's Wick is a designed creature, just yep. like Born is, right? But then on top of that, the Leviathan was said to have had a face, right? Mm-hmm. And so my question, my like, the question that it poses for me, I think it's more the former than the latter. But the question is, maybe does the Leviathan also share Wick's face? And so that's why he was so fixated on it. The, f- is the fish creature? The fish creature, yes. Okay. That he was working on. Yeah. That's fair. I was what the the first time I heard it, I thought clone, more or less. Because he kind of is a clone. Like there are hundreds of wicks in theory. Yeah. So, that's very interesting. It's like that's one of those things where they just like say it and then just like nothing happens about it, you know? Because yeah. I guess to Rachel, it's not important because he's he's wick, you know. Right. You don't. Find, she doesn't linger on it. Yeah. You don't find like. What what you this this is what you'd find in a movie. You'd walk into a room and there'd be like test tubes and you'd find like hundreds of wicks floating in this, you know. Mm-hmm. But you you don't do that. She's like, oh, here's you know, diagrams for wick. Cool. Okay, bye. Basically. Yeah. The only way to like pull this off cinematically, as I can think of it in this exact moment, is she would see like the diagrams, and the the camera wouldn't so much pan like. You would cut to her being sitting at this desk and seeing mm-hmm. the paper, and it might gently pan up, and you would see, like, the feet of a clone and like in the blue test tube with, like, a row of them in front of her and nothing more. Like, just the feet. Like, just the yeah. barest tease. And that's the only way that I think you could maintain the same kind of illusion or mystery that the book maintains. Though, to you know be I mean? fair, to be fair, um, kind of one of the points of the book is that, like, something like like a Wick clone would have been eaten. <laughs> True. Also, you know, would have been it, gone. It, yeah. it, that's very important resources, and they've mm-hmm. kind of nailed it into us that anything that is remotely useful has been scavenged and repurposed, and or will be scavenged. Yeah, and there's a point in there that they're just like we needed to lower our standards so we could get more scavenged because everything above a certain bar has been grabbed, you know. And so that's where like people became acceptable scavenging for the company as well yeah. through the silvery portal, where it's like we will scavenge Rachel and throw her into a, one of the recycling pools. Yeah. So, yeah. but yeah, Wick and the Nautilus pills; those are just things, you know. It's mm-hmm. just it's what we talked about before, where like if Rachel doesn't care that much, we don't get much information about it, you know. Mm-hmm. And so, like we, what we know is Wick is sick. And these Nautilus pills keep him alive. We don't know any more than that. We don't know why he's sick. We don't know what these Nautilus pills are. We don't know what those are or anything like that. So, yeah, I want to I want to touch on something that's tangential that we talked about just for a moment, and it's that idea of the recycling pool, right? And that everything is kind of put in. It gets back to that core idea, or it, it rather it it especially puts it into our head that everything is biotech, and so once again all of the things that are biotech we should treat with the same kind of humanity. Like, we should be treating all things the same because everything could end up in that grand recycling pool. You know, Rachel should be in that recycling pool. Wick should be. The foxes could be. Literally anything that is biological can go into the pool. We can touch on this again. There's a very good statement after we talk about the magician. Yeah, well, let's talk about the magician. (laughs) Because we should talk about the magician. That's true. The magician Um, is like... There's, like, three prongs to this story, and the magician is, like, the third prong, right? Yeah, 
Right. There's there's Wick and Rachel, there's the company, mm-hmm. and there's the magician. The company right. and Mord and the magician. Right. And so And the then Born is... kind of floats between all of it. Yeah. Born is kind of like Yeah. With he's with the Rachel and Wick. That's yeah. Funny. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah, and like the city, whatever. But yeah. The magician <laughs> is incredibly important to everything. We just haven't talked about her yet. There's a lot that happens with the magician. The magician drives the plot in a number of ways, which is fascinating because she has so little screen time by technicality, right? But like yeah. her moves, her actions dictate a lot of what happens mm-hmm. to our protagonists. Which I guess is kind of really nice because she, so she's the magician, right? And it kind of gives you a sense of mystery. I don't know, I mean, yeah, mystery, magic, yeah, basically anything like that. So like she's doing things, but you never actually see her doing things, you know? There's mm-hmm. Yeah, there's, she has exactly two scenes in the book where she is in them, right? Yes. There's the one yep. where she's talking to Rachel and kills Charles X, I believe. I don't think she scavenger. actually kills Charles, Charlie X, he, because he's I dead. think Charlie X is already dead. Yeah. I thought the implication was that she killed him. Yeah, yeah no, she did. She definitely killed him. This is important for no reason, I swear. Yeah. And, you know, the final scene, effectively, of the book. Mm -hmm. Like, those are the two things she's in. But she's such a big player because, like, she's she's seen as effectively equally as powerful as, like, the company and Mord is. Because, Mm -hmm. you know, there's there's the scene where they have that massive fight, you know. And that's fun. That's a fun scene. Um, Yeah. But Are like, you talking about the rockets? The rockets. Yeah, scene? the missiles. Yeah. Yeah, the missile scene. Because it's like. So in our triangle, you know, Magician mm-hmm. Mord, Magician Mord Company, and Rachel Wick. Rachel and Wick, in the grand scheme of things, are not important. No, they're ants. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And that's kind of what they what they talk about is like they're not important. But obviously the magician knows that they're fairly important. The magician knows about about them and goes as far as to, like, be vaguely threatening to them, you know. However, right. the, the company Wick really is important. Care. Rachel is not really important. Wick, that's that's Rachel is important to get to Wick. Yes, is leverage. Of. Yes. Yeah. So it's like there's a very big power differential between the three points of our triangle. However, the magician and the company are kind of on equal footing. So it's like she's so important but it's really difficult to describe why effectively the 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 biggest equivalent you can pull is like a she's a warlord effectively you know she's not she's something that people can you know rally around in the city if they choose to they like give up some of their personality you no know, individualism you know freedom whatever but they have i guess security it's kind of that classic thing of like yeah and she wants to not necessarily make the city a better place, but rid it of Mord and right. control it effectively. I was going to read the, the the ending again, but I didn't have the time to today, unfortunately. Because she says some very important things in the end, but also Rachel doesn't necessarily tell us about a lot of those things, you know? Yeah, because Rachel's already made up her mind, which is right. fascinating. And, like, mm-hmm. the the... I don't want to talk about it quite yet. I want to I want to focus a little bit on the middle of the story here before we we hit we hit that moment we hit yeah. that rock against the skull. But 
<laughs> Nothing. <laughs> Nothing. Um, I, I want to talk a little bit about the middle of the book here, right? Which is really Bourne's growth. And this is this is where Bourne grows inside of the story and, and kind of matures. And this is really really where I think we get to the question of evaluating our characters as symbiotic or parasitic on each other, on the world at large, and kind of like even Mord's place is sort of this this giant reservoir. Did you pick any did you pick at that at all? Did did any of that come up in your mind? Or what what do you think about the the sort of relationships there no like <laughs> that that's not something that necessarily came to on my own like the sure. it kind of makes sense a lot of i mean rachel is a scavenger right right she is so naturally a parasite right like she is taking away from the city or wherever she goes it's just the city born or not born wick not wick mord the other mm-hmm. weird name to like improve their own station and it's kind of like god we haven't gotten to the end of the book yet so i can't make that equivalency yet i mean you Um, can you can because we're in spoiler territory one one of the things at the end of the book after everything goes down is like you find people working together you know and it's like that's how you improve your station is by working together with, with and making like a society effectively because what scavenging is is scavenging is taking things for yourself and you know for your small your balcony hills your wickbourne at this point you Mm -hmm. know area whereas like in order to actually improve your station you need to organize and get into a like a village a society whatever because community Yeah, yeah something communal you can't be competing for resources how am i going to finish this up it's it's more like i i understand the competing for resources you pooling effort i think is the the benefit of a symbiotic relationship right like it's it's a trade right Mm. versus just a take and that's what i find that's why i think that this this is such an apt metaphor for kind of the book and different parts of it is you've got a symbiotic relationship to start with between wick and rachel you've got a symbiotic relationship to some degree between born and rachel like they're both getting something out of their experiences you've got a parasitic relationship between born and wick because they effectively are creating stress and tension for each other and taking energy from each other in Mm -hmm. those moments right so they're while not directly scavenging or stealing things they are negatively impacting each other in the same place so it's it's got a a kind of a negative connotation you've got and then you've got the group of them they're parasitic to mord which is Mm -hmm. kind of the cow if you want to put it that way for society like that's that's where every all the resources are at the same time mord is also a tyrant and i think he's described as such in the book a couple of times but yeah, mortal kill you, but like, because he's kind of how, yeah, he's how new things enter into the the scavenging economy. Because mm-hmm. I mean, you can only pull so much out of the city before everything relatively useful. And we talked about this early, where the bar gets lowered and you have to grab different things. But Mord, who comes out of the the company, and people really just don't go into the company because of Mord and Mord's proxies, and then he just like like a big brown santa claus just like brings company gifts to all of the good scavengers in in the city so being parasitic isn't necessarily i would say the correct term between like 
I guess, for like Rachel and Mord, because Mord isn't necessarily losing anything. Yeah, yeah, he's more like a yeah. mineral patch. Yeah, it's it's more like yeah, I, I I don't know how to describe it because they're effectively to him ants. It's like if ants take it's away my crumbs, I don't care. You know, it's it's important also to say that this entire book has a tone of the world being very indifferent. Like yes. the entire book has a has a stark indifference to it, to the protagonists, to the characters that are inside of it, to kind of everything. Yeah. And it's saying that also the world owes you nothing. Mm. Like the world doesn't owe you anything, but you have the ability to imprint upon the world a better system. And like the magician is the opposite of that. The magician is someone who's trying to take advantage and is is trying to break down Mord, which is seen as this tyrannical element in the system, but is doing so via diabolical means. Here's what I like about what you just said, is that the world is indifferent, and I think the reason that nobody has necessarily improved their station, be it through selfish or selfless means, you know, is Mord. So I think Mord is forced indifference in this story. Mord is a force of nature. He doesn't necessarily care about you or about anything. He just knows that he is in control. He he controls the city. In mm, control is not quite the right word. It's like reigns over is lords mm, over because he 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 almost does he does nothing purposeful, right? Mm. So like whatever you're whatever you're trying to do, it will be destroyed by Mord, not out of malice per se, but out of indifference, mm-hmm. right? So he is necess- he is indifference personified. Yes, he will eat you, not because he hates you, but because you're there and you look like a popcorn shrimp, you know? Right. So like, and you're tasty. I don't hate the popcorn shrimp; they just taste really good in tartar, you know. So, like, I think Mord is a force of nature more than anything else. Mm-hmm. And you can kind of equate him to a snowstorm or tornado, whatever. It's It's been used everywhere in fiction about, like, in Dune, the worms, you know? Right. Things like that. So. He's elemental. Yeah. Yeah, he's, he's effectively... You have to you have to beat him before you can do anything else, which is why the magician is specifically targeting him in that, because the magician wants to be in control, be in charge, but you can't really do anything until you deal with the bear. The elephant in the city. Yeah. Right. The so. flying bear in the city. And all of the little bears. The micro-terrifying, yeah. venomous bears. Because let me tell you, if they were just, like, straight-up grizzlies, that'd be scary enough. But they had to give them, like, venom and shit. Yeah, poisoned claws. Are you kidding me? That that shit's terrifying. Yeah. Not to speak of, like, the acid rain and everything else that's going on. I love that you're drinking your water out of the bowl. Because that's where your ice keeps working. Yeah, I was just drinking yeah. the extra ice. Yeah, no, it's great. I just thought it was funny. I... Fuck, this story is so good. And that's just like another layer on top of this whole thing, right? There's so much shit we can talk about. Right, and it's 300. There are so many books that do so much less in 300 pages. We haven't haven't touched on, like, Bourne when he gets banished and, like, the scavengers that Rachel meets and... Holy fuck. The, The magician's cloak... Yes. I think is one of the coolest things in this entire story. It Biotech. just makes her it just makes her invisible. And yeah, it's literally like 
it's biotech like pretty much every sci-fi story uses technology the way we assume it would in like robots and stuff mm-hmm. but this book is all about genetic manipulation and using living technology and like even her cloak her cloak turns her a hundred percent invisible but it's 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 something that's living and like i know at the end is like i think it's like a throwaway line near the end of the book where rachel like takes her cloak that because it was almost dying because it's a living thing and she puts it in her bag and is just like you know we'll put this somewhere i i i didn't write it down because i'm a fool but yeah right well, it, you're right. She's like, this will be useful. Like, yeah. after the fact, she's like, this is still biotech. You know, did the same degree. Like, yeah. we'll, we we can make use of this. Yeah. We, um, didn't, we didn't mention her cloak, and that's a very important part of the magician, is that she yeah, has an it, invisibility cloak and is very sneaky. And it means that she's... So there's, there's a time that implies that she visited the balcony cliffs and that she was able to sneak through. There's there's some footprints that are, like, unaccounted for and some traps that weren't triggered. Wasn't that in, in part two? the... Was that in part two? I thought that was in the the company. There is in the company. Okay. No, the company is definitely accounted for, but there is a moment because she had been going in and out to talk with Wick. Like that's what we what's revealed in part I two. I a hundred percent missed that. Okay. You yeah. said it was in part two. It's it's somewhere in part two is that she is clearly going in and out and talking to Wick because she ultimately she's hold she's trying to hold Wick hostage, right? And like holding right. Rachel kind of as this this advantageous point, which is what also encourages him to write the letter. Like right. all of we, this we haven't even talked about the letter yet. Circumspect, yeah. Oh my god, <laughs> at all. Fuck, this book is so good. I did want to read this this line in particular. I think this was the most important passage to me. Um, reading it this time, so this is this is what struck me. So it's in the moment when Bourne is getting kicked out of the apartment, right? Like when Bourne is being removed this is like the end um, of two isn't it it's near the end of two yeah it's right before she says goodbye born right and goodbye rachel and like she says that those are kind of the last words but they aren't really wait a second is this oh sorry this is this is in three this is the last time that they talk to each other before in, in the Bourne goes off and fights more yep. yeah but still i i think this is important because i think it gets to the heart of Bourne's relationship with Rachel and I think it also gets to the heart of Wick's relationship and I it's kind of made mention of earlier but anyway so she says Bourne all I could say was his name because I couldn't say anything that really told him how my instincts clashed with my reason not in front of Wick and I thought too that Bourne was gripped by the false power of remorse which makes you think that by strength of your convictions your emotions you can make everything right even when you can't remorse and a false vision made Bourne say these crazy things i thought and i was just like ah you're so right remorse all the time makes you believe that you have the superpower that you could do better and that you could you can like overcome and, and forgive your own wrong to someone else you know what i mean like that is it is a that is a powerful phraseology and it just hit me hit me like a ton of bricks yeah there's a there's a lot of shit like that in this book yeah like he's yeah, a great writer Not profound that said that multiple times but yeah he's a great writer we like, for for like talking about like how incredible of a writer is we've we've read shockingly few of the quotes but to be fair you could quote most of the fucking book mm-hmm. it's so pretty and beautiful and like you could open to any page and i'm sure there's something good on it i wanted to read the first line before mm. just do it just because it it just like lays 
the foundation of the story so well, but it, it's literally just, I found Born on a sunny gunmetal day when the giant bear Mord came roving near our home. And it's just like, okay, that's how we're opening the book. It's just like, giant bear, sure, yeah. But, God, I... I adore his prose. And so I, I think I texted this to you. I've been reading an obscene amount of Brandon Sanderson over the last couple of months. Mm. I adore the man for his plot and storytelling chops. Incredible what he conveys. And Magic System's genius and sort of the level of thought and sort of the scientific reasoning behind a lot of it mm. is great. Fantastic. But I miss this in his stories more mm -hmm. than I miss anything else, which is just that, that flourish that gives this polish of extra of humanity of, of like something just that hits you in the right spot and just makes you go, you shudder. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's the thing that Jeff does like every two pages, which is crazy. It's always very pleasing to read. Mm -hmm. Even when bad things are happening, Right. It is pleasing to read. Like it just aesthetically the words and the sentences are just n nice, you know? Like even when like Born is getting mauled by the by the Mord proxy the first time that they go out, it's like the way that he describes it and the way that he describes Rachel inside of the of the rock born is just like it's very pretty. But not the imagery itself is not pretty, but, like, the way it's described, it's a difference between what the words mean and what the words look like, you know? It's just right. really right. well done. Yeah. And I, and I think that's also, at the same time that we're, we're talking up this pretty language, that's also simultaneously the magician's downfall, is that she thinks that she can use words to, like, win people over, which I think is also fascinating. I don't know. I just, there's so much, there's so much this fucking. Yeah. Okay, needless to say, let's talk about the kicking out of the apartment. I think we can move yep. to that point near the end of part two. That kicking out again, of the balcony cliffs or kicking yes. out of the apartment? Born, born being kicked out of the apartment. Okay. Like being removed from the balcony cliffs. Before this, Kick Born moves out of Rachel's apartment into his own apartment, which is, I think, an incredibly important part because you go from... It's literally like how we were talking about before. His growth is just accelerating mm -hmm. in terms of like what we know in our world about like equating him to a child is just like, oh, he hit 18 years old, quote unquote, really fast. And he's going yeah. to college and he goes into his own apartment and he decorates it. And we'll talk about the astronauts later. Oh, fuck. We've skipped like the astronauts that. so much, so often. See, um, the astronauts don't seem important when the first time you read it, but they are. Right. But like I'm, I'm assuming they're even more important because you've read the sequel book or the second book or the other book, however on earth they, yeah, they go together. How do you even qualify dead astronauts? The way I understand it, dead astronauts is even weirder than this one. I have not read oh, it, it is yet. Wild. I would, I would simply describe it because I'm, I'm a non-spoiler person and I definitely did this. I described it this way when I read it. It's what I imagine an LSD trip is in the form of a novel. Yeah. It's uh, sitting on my bedside table because I know I knew we were going to do this. We can do it. Yeah. And I didn't um, want to like read it before we did this podcast. We so. made it. <laughs> so truly yeah. just as a note to anyone at home, my recommendation with dead astronauts is set aside two and a half hours 
read it without stopping because you don't want to stop <laughs> and it is confounding in all of the ways that this book is confounding except more so and then some and i have never it is the most unique reading experience i've ever had and i remember my top 10 favorite books like anyway that's it that's the whole thing I remember you were we were shit we were sitting in a Shake Shack in New York, mm-hmm. and you were describing dead astronauts to me, and I'm like, this sounds crazy, and you're like, you need to read Born first. I'm like, okay, and I cracked open Born, however, like six months later, and I expected it to be how you describe dead astronauts, and no, it's a regular ass book. Born is a regular ass book. Dead <laughs> astronauts, I don't think is a regular ass book. <laughs> dead ass, it's not. Yeah. <laughs> so. Very much so looking forward to reading that book. It, but you know, I'll, I'll just I, I like I like this preface um, is that it has a three point four on Goodreads. And what's crazy is they're almost one or five star reviews, like almost entirely. And so it is it is such a polarizing book. That's fair. From what I've heard about it, that makes sense. Yeah, because it is it is fascinating okay anyway i don't want to rant about it too much let's talk about the dead astronauts though because i think it well, is an interesting bit of are we gonna go back to him in the apartment so it's it, it, in okay. combination with the apartment so okay. and then we'll um, talk about him getting kicked out of balcony hills yes we'll yeah because like you said it, it's kind of it all ties yeah. together because so, I mean, we have to go backwards a little bit to talk about dead astronauts the all dead that i'm saying is those three dead astronauts of whom we find kind of planted as though they may have fallen from the sky or something else fascinate Bourne. So Bourne eventually takes those in and then puts them on his walls despite protests from Rachel and otherwise about like leaving them be their dead bodies and otherwise. They appear to maybe not be astronauts to actually be people well, in contamination suits. It's it's clearly really said know. it's clearly said that they are people in in hazmat suits. It is clearly said in the book. Yes. I paid attention to that specifically. So it is clearly said that they are people in hazmat suits, but Bourne keeps calling them dead astronauts. And that's actually what Rachel says first when she finds them buried, I believe, up to their waist in the courtyard. As if, you yes, know, like, shoulders are popping out. Yeah. Yeah. I think she, she assumed it was a trap or something like that. Yeah. And then, yeah. And then was that was that the first time that she goes out with Bourne that she sees them? Or how does he get them? I don't remember. First time. No, he gets them on his own. He had to have got them on his own. Yeah, 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 yeah. But how does he? How does he know that they're there? Does because she goes out and she finds them. It's it's the time that she's creeping with him, like she's stalking yeah. him, right? Or he's sorry, excuse me, he's stalking her. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. That that that's what I figured. So. He's like pretending to be the man in the trench coat. You know, like three three kids stacked in a trench coat with a hat, yeah. a floppy hat on top. He, he's yeah. a wizard, quote unquote. Yeah. He, yeah, he does say, I'm a wizard. <laughs> yeah. He's like that's so one good. of his favorite yeah. disguises. Anyways. Yeah. So yeah. So the dead astronauts, they're in they're out in the city, they're in a courtyard, they're buried up to I I, I assume their waist, but maybe higher. It's born it's moves. like it's shoulders because they're like popping out of the ground just a little bit. Okay. I yeah. know this because I know this. Yeah, I I'm don't, assuming it's part yeah. of the next book. Well, so one thing <laughs> one thing that's really interesting, slight side note here, is that they say that they see more astronauts in the holding p- pond yes. when they go to to the city, which mm-hmm. I thought was really interesting because knowing that the next book is called Dead Astronauts. You're paying a lot of attention to the dead no, astronauts. No, I am paying so much attention to these astronauts, <laughs> these quote-unquote astronauts, and like how they are treated in this book, so... 
Anyways, yeah. Bourne's apartment, he hangs the astronauts on the wall. It really kind of weirds out Rachel because obviously, you know, he has dead people hanging on his wall. Right. It's true. Yeah, I mean. You know, and that's so interesting because I, I think, again, this gets into the kind of fascination with Bourne himself and the way that he eats living things and consumes them and makes them a part of him and i think he has a fascination with something that actually dies and ends because he there isn't an end inside of him and so i think he kind of idolizes this to some degree because he he doesn't know death and so these are examples of something that he does not understand and will never understand and at the same time fun ornaments in his room lizards moss astronauts i'm trying to find the where she first sees the astronauts in his room and i thought i i thought i had literally flicked straight towards it but i think i was a bit too far off so i literally flipped to the page where he moves out but oh well anyways i was trying to figure out exactly like what her words were when she saw the astronauts but so let's see what is the what is the timeline of the astronauts they're buried in the ground they're on Mm -hmm. Born's wall and then they get thrown out they get put back out the magician then no I don't think I'm oh they get moved onto the roof and then they get put back down right so near the ground and then the threat I thought they went out and then buried yeah is is balcony cliff at the edge of a cliff no because I assumed on the backside like there was like a cliff that if you went out the backside you came up atop but that's just my brain. Well, it, so it's an apartment building, right? With like right. hollowed out edges or sides. So it kind of feels like a cliff. Yeah. If that makes sense. So it's For kind of like the bones of it. I always I imagine assumed, like hourglass. I always assumed that it was pushed up against like it was jutting out from an mm. a, from a real cliff. Or there was like that's a fair. cliff built over it. You know, the uh, I think that's what's so fun about this to some degree yeah. is that there's so much space to play inside of your brain with some of these things. And it's meant to be a nondescript city for that reason. But yeah. yeah. So in my brain, when I see the yeah. the balcony cliffs, it's literally like only the like literally the front is coming out of an actual cliff face. Yeah. Kind of like it, the apartment building was built into a cliff, which is probably sure. wrong. But so when I say so when they go out the back, I see them coming out like at roof level, but but mm. behind. And so that's just I don't know. That's just how my brain worked with it. But so I Got believe. It. The astronauts were put out back, and then, yeah, somebody loyal to the magician created graves for them. Yeah. And then labeled them Wick, Rachel, and Bourne. I truly believe that it was the magician themselves, which is that, like, sneaky footprint thing through, because I think that that was another sign of, like, I can sneak through here, and I have power here, where you believe you have traps and other things. But that said, I do want to, at the very least, make mention of the grave, right? Which I think is very, it's it's very good of rachel to have buried them i think to some degree because they did they were kind of propped up they were used as ornaments inside of a room for a creature who barely understood you know the proper burial for three heroes is appropriate. yeah and she specifically said now you're not part of anyone's games something the effect of that is very similar verbiage so i i i like that quite a bit because it's literally like there's not a whole lot of human old school humanity like that in yeah. this world but like like ba- you don't really bury somebody like that you just kind of leave them where they are but this is a very 
<laughs> ritual. It's a very symbolic action of like, because she thought that they had been, you know, on, hang, hanging on the wall. That was incredibly rude. Rude's not the right word. What's the correct word? Hang, macabre. Dis- it is, dis- I think she describes it as macabre. But... Yeah. And I mean, disrespectful to the dead, right? <clears throat> yeah. And so she does something that is not necessary. She buries these guys, girls, these dead astronauts in a way that is not really described anywhere else. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think it's very symbolic of like how she is still, I don't know, old school, I guess, more than anything else. So let me let me tell you from a perspective of having read Dead Astronauts, I flinched at some details. What's up? I'm not going to spoil. I'm okay. just saying I flinched. I flinched at some details when reading that I was like, oh, fuck. Oh, shit. Oh, fuck. That has implications. And yeah, I'm very excited to finally get to talk about it because that is the, like, I adore this book. I fucking, there's nothing like Dead Astronauts. And I'm very excited to talk about that when we get there. But you need to read this book in order to understand that book. And I, I haven't even convinced PJ to get to that point. Ooh, okay. Adam has finally opened the Mountain Dew. I need a taste sampling. I need you to taste it and let us know. So this is the uh, this, the hard Mountain Dew Baja Blast here. This was uh, what was requested on the Discord. Uh, go mm-hmm. join the Words and Whiskey Patreon. It gets you access to the Words and Whiskey Discord, and you can talk to like-minded people and tell me what uh, Hard Mountain Dew to drink. So this goes out True. to, I think this is Sharkbait that said do the Baja Blast. So. Yes. Huh. Okay. You know what it tastes like? It tastes like if you put some vodka in a Baja Blast. Oh, like no. it's it kind tastes... of unfortunate that it doesn't taste better. No, I mean it. T- I mean, it tastes exactly how you expect it to, but like in a not oh. it, in like a not bad way. It okay, literally... so here's the here's the thing, Adam. I literally did that in the fourth episode in Red Rising in our fourth podcast episode. I literally drank a vodka Baja Blast. So you say that, and I, I like, I have visceral memories of you doing got, that on the show. You gotta try this and tell me how okay. it actually compares, because like, I bet it's better because the other one was flat. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. This vodka. is this is not flat. Yeah. So yeah, but okay. like, this is definitely something you would drink in college. You know, sure. I remember like the first time I went and I had alcohol. It was with with our friend down in the cities, and like it tastes. It's got that sharpness of the booze, you know, but like you could tell it's not high quality booze. Obviously, it's a Mountain Dew spiked Mountain Dew, but also like they got the ratios right. So like you get the Baja Blast and you get a little bit of sharpness from the alcohol, but it's not like it doesn't taste bad. Okay. All right. Yeah, I I can I can get behind that. I can understand that. Yeah, it tastes exactly like a mixed drink that you would make at like a house party where like you're playing beer pong sure with like a bunch of college kids that tracks i can yeah. i can definitely track that so it's worth it so cool i don't know i've got a 12 pack of this right now and i have <laughs> four different flavors and so i got the baja blast and depending on how long we go i got a regular mountain dew but we've cool. been going for a long time yeah i imagine and we'll we haven't even touched everything well i mean we're, we're getting there though we're, we're almost yeah. in part two so 
we we talked about the dead astronauts. We talked about the yep. uh, permanent self. Did you have anything else to talk about in the middle here with Bourne, Rachel Wick, before we kind of get into the escalation of things, them getting kicked out of the cliffs otherwise? I want to touch on, not not now, but The duck with later. the broken wing? Do you want to talk about the duck, the bird with the broken wing? Oh. Sure. <laughs> Sorry. That's not what I'm talking I'm about. Kidding. Not yet, but in a little bit, I want to talk about Bourne's journal. Oh, Bourne's journal is good. That Wait, was in- honestly... That was incredibly interesting because I forgot about that the fir- after my first read. Right. So Me too. W- reading it again, I'm just like, oh, he knows how to journal. Forgot well, about that. He's he's so he's so with it, and he wants so badly to live up to Rachel's expectations. You know, right. that's that's what hurts with more or with Bourne moving out. Right? Is that she finds that journal, mm-hmm. and. You know, there's the whole fight of like him moving out and everything else, and it's it's just this, it's this immense moment where the kid becomes the adult, right? Like in a in a real way, and you're just left with kind of profound sadness in in, in like in a good way. Like I, I mean this from a reader's perspective, like being impacted this much by writing is fantastic. But I I remember I don't I don't know if you had a similar experience, but I. This way, this this isn't like crazy personal, but it's a, it's a little bit personal. Like moving out of my parents' houses variously was very different, but I could feel that same sort of emotional moment reading Bourne's journal. Like reading that, it's like it's the same kind of like want or desire to like fulfill needs and like everything else, and like also starting to be on your own and like live up to expectations, and it just. It, it hit in this weird way. I, I got this when when I was born, my mom, born. When I was born, my mom wrote me this letter, right? And I got it when I turned 18. And like, that was a fascinating thing where it's like this very expository moment of like her and like growing up and like getting to understand like the place and time, which my mom and dad were. And it just, it in the same way, this is so crazy, but in the same fundamental way, the story pulled on those same heartstrings. Like, on those same base, like, growing up, loss of childhood, loss of innocence, heartstrings. I don't know. It's tough. I I almost cried this time reading this part about, like, him getting kicked out and then the journal. Like, mm-hmm. I I lost it. That's why I read the passage, because I was like, God, it's so good. Yeah. Uh, and the nice thing about the journal is that it's one of two times in this entire book that it's not Rachel, Rachel is not the narrator. But to be fair, the second time, Wick's letter, she is actually the narrator because there's literally a point in there where she says, there's other things in that letter that I will not tell you about. She's recanting, yeah. I fucking right. hated that, by the way. But yeah. it's it, it kind of goes back to our idea of like personhood a little bit because you can t- tell, you can 100% tell that Bourne was not trying to kill people, per se, right. but he had to. Like it was, he was driven to, it's like, not to be super cliche, but he was like a vampire. He had to feed on people to live, you know? Right. And so like, right. it's so it's what you said. It's heartbreaking because he did not want to do that. He didn't want to kill people because Rachel said it was bad. And Rachel said that you can't do that, but he had to. And then there's the moment where he went like slightly Dexter where he's like, I'll only kill bad people. And that lasted for all of two weeks. But it, you know, it's, it's one. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I just, 
you want so deeply to understand things through Bourne's eyes mm -hmm. and through like, especially when he's like, I have nine senses. Okay, what are those other four senses, Bourne? Are you going to tell me? No, nope. of course like, I want. I want more of that. I'm like, there's we have. Right. Well, he does because I think he ate a brain well, or yeah. two. So I, I think he gets it, and he's like, well, I have more senses than she has, so I have more understanding of the world. He can she, uh, see shrimp colors. He can. Definitely shrimp colors. At the very least, the mantis shrimp and can, you know. Anyway. I think that's not actually a thing, by the way. Anyways. The mantis shrimp colors? Yeah. I the spectrum? I think that shrimp can't actually see additional colors. I think that was just, like, a flub in some data. I think I read that. Cut this I'm out if I'm wrong. I'm pretty sure that the mantis shrimp, it's not that they can necessarily... They can, they've got a deeper view of the spectrum. It's not more colors. They just have more lenses to interpret the colors that are in the same spectrum. Yeah. It's the same problem that I have, but it's in a different degree. But the opposite. Basically. They can see yeah. more colors. You can see fewer colors. Correct. You got to sneak one in every episode. I, I can, yeah, it's not, it's not, I tried to sneak in a StarCraft reference every episode, not a colorblind joke. But yeah, no, I, anyway, point Anyways. being, roundabout here. I love the two different moments that we diverge from her perspective. I did want to make mention when you were talking about the letter to the, the Wick letter where she recants some of the things. I think that those were probably mostly lovey or sexual in nature, which I also, like, in my head. Like, that's that's mm. my read on those mm. redactions from that letter is more one of affection more than anything else. That makes um, so much sense, and I don't know why I didn't think of that. And it's just like he doesn't want to be like crazy sexually explicit. Given like we get so we get sex throughout this novel a number mm -hmm. of times. We haven't really talked about it a whole lot, but there is yeah. there is sex here. It, it is it is present. It's not overly described. It's not yeah. overwritten. Not underdone. But it is an important exchange between exchanges. Almost too too base. It's an important moment between our characters between Wick and Rachel, and it makes us like think about the relationship in a bunch yeah. of ways. So. I was rooting for them this time around. Yeah. It was not the first time, but I was rooting for them this time around. Kind of coming around on that, the Jeff's use of sex is actually really interesting to me because he definitely uses it as like a humanizing thing. He's like, mm -hmm. with all of this like crap that's happening, you know, the the apocalypse, everything. Like these these two characters are like in a relationship, and it's not like, and it seems like a fairly healthy relationship. Everything things like said and done you know like especially if you remove born fucking with them from the equation right yeah. yeah and like it's about as healthy as a, of a relationship as you can get in the apocalypse you know like right. they don't take advantage of each other you're right like the sex scenes aren't really explicit i think the most explicit thing they ever say is like he got hard against me like, ooh, yeah. ooh, ooh, if you listen to these short pours, you've listened to the romance one. There's a lot yeah. worse stuff, you know? <laughs> right. Right. So, like. But I think it's also yeah. good that he doesn't shy away from it. You know what right. I mean? And it's I mean, like he, the, we fucked and like, mm -hmm. it's very. He treats it as just like a normal thing that happens, which is such right. a breath of fresh air where it's like, it's not given a certain, you know, gravity. You know, it's not like end all be all it's not like the most important thing they do but it's just something that these two people do who are in this relationship i don't know it's it's actually really refreshing the way that he specifically talks about sex yeah it, it's strange to call it eloquent because it is the most 
harsh moments in some ways of the novel because it, it just hits you with the we fucked or like I grabbed him and we yeah. embraced and we did it yeah. on the stairs or we like all, all these different moments. I think they literally did it when the biggest fight was happening. Like yeah, just they, after the rockets. Yeah, didn't they do it just after the rocket scene, like in I that like so. dusty, you know, air duct or whatever they were yeah. sitting in? Yeah, yeah. Which is like because they were close to each other, and it was just this moment, yeah. and yeah, you know, it's it's all that. It's clever portrayal too, and it's just it's well done. It's well done in a similar yeah. way to also like the. You think about how to approach? Eh, I don't necessarily want to talk about that. I do. I do really appreciate the origin story of Rachel, and I think we need to just get there, and we can kind of talk about it. A little we bit. haven't even talk talked about, like, about that, <laughs> right? Holy I want fuck. to talk about like ethnicity, its implications, and like its lack of implications actually on the story, which I think is fantastic. That is one thing that they don't necessarily talk about is like what you were saying is ethnicity. Like right. she comes from an island nation, right? Like you can we assume something s- like Hawaii or the Philippines or yeah, you can make some assumptions based yeah. on that. And the only thing they say about anything, like any description of characters, that Wick is pale and translucent. Right. She yep. Rachel doesn't actually describe herself at she all. She does at one point. She's brown skinned. I think I very, I, I, the beginning. okay brown thighs. It's when I, it's when they're fucking the first time. Yeah, is when that when that happens. I guess I took that as a she's a scavenger, so she's tan. To be mm. fair, when I first read that, I which I think of it as like an islandish thing, especially when you get the context and yeah, you're yeah. I guess they. I don't think they describe any other characters in any sort of physical way like that outside no. of like. I think the magician is tall. <laughs> You know, I think so. Yeah, she's tall for a woman or something yeah. like that. And like and they describe when they go to like the the scavenger base, they describe I think one of the the people like the kids has short teams. hair or something. Yeah, teams. Yeah, with yeah. with the short hair, the the boy. Yeah, yeah. Or like the the scavenger that she's talking to, they describe her. But I don't know. I think that's a good jumping off point to actually talk about the boys, which are the kids rather the under kids. the magician and the post leaving the apartment rather not post leaving the apartment but when rachel ventures out when she's a ghost when she's a ghost i yes by the way sorry slight tangent i fucking love the writing when she's a ghost yeah because it's just like you're gonna love dead astronauts then because the fact that she like describes herself as a ghost gives you such Mm -hmm. it like it paints your perception of the world in that moment. Right? Yeah, and like, like how an she perceives herself and how she's carrying herself and everything like that is just so. Just the phrase like "I am a ghost" gives you so much background and like gives you a really good like point to stand on and jump off of into how she sees herself and how she's carrying herself. It's crazy. Yeah. I love that, Jeff. Shout out to you. If he, Jeff he, follows me on Twitter. He's great. Yeah, Jeff you know and I what? Talk quite a bit. You know what's a fucking like stressor to me? He he liked the tweet when you said we were covering the book. Anyways, yeah, he, I don't. He has, I don't assume he's going to listen to this, but if he does, Jeff, I love you. Jeff owns the rights to one of my short stories, which is a fun fact. Uh-huh. It's the only thing I've been paid to write ever, like a specific piece of media. But it's cool. Eventually, yeah. it'll get published, maybe. But we'll see someday. Yeah. Anyways. What we're uh, we talking about? Jeff did good things. Jeff, Jeff did, did great cool. writing about the ghost. Ghost, yes. Yeah, that whole thing was cool. I like the ghost. 
Sorry, yeah. that was not a very good ending to that. <laughs> yeah. No, ghost, I mean, cool, it's fine. Good. Muy bien. Ghost, cool, good. Muy bien. But I, I think it gets into, the, the bit with the ghost gets into the kids that are in this environment and the other scavengers. This is kind of a real introduction to other people to some degree. We see the magician. She's kind of the top of a different pyramid. But the kids are left to fend from themselves in this world and you you question where their parents were who birthed them and like how'd they get here and there's just all for me there's so many questions about how there ended up being so many children that are just kind of abandoned and orphaned in this world to various degrees but I uh, I can also see it being really easy to orphan a child yeah. in this environment. I like to imagine so. that there was some sort of great war that claimed a lot sure. of the adults but I don't know yeah. for sure. I think the I mean, hell, you could say the war between Mord and the magician, you know, like, yeah, claim the adults. I think this scene specifically is why this wouldn't make a good movie. Hmm. Because the, with the big man at the campfire. Yeah, specifically the existence of this band of children, I think would kind of pull you out a little bit. Hmm. Of, of the story and i don't necessarily know how to clarify that at all but it's one of those things where like i think if you saw this band of kids on like the big screen i think that whoever the director is would try to make it incredibly sympathetic and like you're supposed to feel really bad for these kids which you should probably but they're generally described as self-sufficient in the book I mean, yeah, they're trying, I feel like... to be fair, they're trying to give away one of the kids. That's not necessarily great, but... Right. Not a good thing. Not a good thing. I I think I agree with you, but I don't think it's the most unfilmable moment. I do think that basically what you would do is instead you would just, like, keep the... How you convey things like this or how I think about conveying them in, in screenwriting and things like that is you'd keep the camera on level between your good characters and your bad characters. And that's how you keep everyone feeling like they're the same type of person is by mm-hmm. keeping the camera focused on the same level as you as you go between them. So I think I feel like the move would be to take these kids and humanize them as adults as much as possible while yeah. keeping their language kiddish. You know what I mean? Like make them yeah. talk dumb. Or like children, but then make their actions mirror what they need to do to survive. I imagine like the War Boys from Fury Road to some degree, right? That's an that is like a an eccentric example and not perfectly proper, but in the same sort of characterization way of like people being forced to survive in ways that you wouldn't expect. And like, yeah. how do you how do you humanize them? Well, it might take an entire you know movie to make one look good, but it's not yeah. really the quest of this movie. Yeah. I don't know. There's also I I don't I don't know if you've read it. Have you read The Road by Cormac McCarthy? No, you've talked about it though. It's one of my favorite books. It's in my top ten. I think I'm getting it confused with The Book of Eli. Okay, interesting, similar, different in a lot of ways. They share the they share like, some traits. They're tr- it's it's a dad and a kid. Yeah, isn't that father and son? Same with The Book of Eli. And they're no. traveling to a place. I realize that's incredibly vague. They, they're traveling they to are, a place, but well, in the in the they're traveling to a place way that that is how Cormac McCarthy is kind of described. So, or that's the way that he kind of even describes it is they're traveling to the coast. Ooh. But also the, in the book of Eli, they're kind of traveling to, I think, the, to sea. the coast. Okay, yeah, I see. Anyway, should I should, I should I read the Wikipedia plot or should I read the book? I would say you should read the book because Sweet. closing Wikipedia. The 
the book is fascinatingly written. I read it once a year. It's yeah. 240 pages, and I read it once a year. My 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 copy is actually about to give up, and so I have to get a new one because it's going to break. There's also a movie with Viggo Mortensen that is pretty good. Yeah, 2009. Uh, but so. it is probably too spooky for you yeah. as far as that's, movies go. That's one problem with a lot of post-apocalyptic media is that a lot of times art authors and directors – want to prove how dangerous the world is and then they just mm. do some random shit it is like <clears throat> here's a guy that got a bat to the face and you get to watch it and i'm like i don't want to watch that it's not that it's never that actually mm. in the movie which i which i think actually would have done i think it would have been more publicly appealing if they would have gone that route if that makes yeah. sense like it would have been more people would have liked it more but instead, it's much more reserved as far as film goes. I still think it's too like much that. for you, though. Yeah. I like reserved. Yeah. Most of what I don't like is, like, active violence and gore. Yeah, and but, like, cutting scares. to a head on a pole is, like... Eh, that's not my favorite, but, like, Pirates of the Caribbean has stuff like that, you know? Yeah, but it's kind of fresh. I mean, it's not like bleeding down the pole, but it's like yeah. I don't know. You're right. There, there I, I probably moments. wouldn't like that. Well, there, there, there is a moment that I yeah. can't talk about because it's important in the book. That is the moment I should say. Yeah. But not to cross uh, podcasts, but like if I didn't like the violence in uh, Doctor Strange, I probably wouldn't like that. No, but you would like reading it again. Yeah, like that's that's my recommendation. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, born. The Born book we're talking about. is a great book. Before we went off on the road tangent, we were talking about Jeff, Chef's Kiss of, of work throughout this whole thing. We're kind of rambling through this entire yeah. thing. I want to talk about the giant kaiju. Okay, let's let's move. We're gonna move from the this. Oh, we want to talk about the kids. Do you want to talk more about the kids? Yeah, because we're talking about the kids and the movie yeah. and what what yada right. yada yada. I yeah. just. I think that shooting the kids in a movie as kids would really kind of take away from it because they're just trying to survive just like everybody else, you know? I feel like you age them up to teens, you know? Yeah. Put, but the, also put them like, on the same cusp of Bourne's mental age. You yeah. know what I mean? Like, I, I I get kind of what a like a director would do here. We're just like, oh, this place is so shitty that even these kids are, like, scavenging to survive. But still, like... I don't necessarily know how to describe it very well, but I think that would take away from the from the story. But regardless, sure. kids, they've got their cool piece of biotech, which is, let me tell you, one of the coolest biotech, I think, in the entire book. Oh, the fire? Yeah, the, the fire slug. Fire. Yeah. The slug that's just like, the slug doesn't want anything but to be lit on fire. Like, having mm -hmm. a perpetu perpetual heat and fuel source would be great in yeah. this, like, scenario wild brief tangent elden ring i think stole that from this book like i think there's no way because that's actually a common place instead of the fires i'm like you gotta be you gotta be shitting me anyway moving on anyway did you did you have any thoughts other thoughts on the magician and like her use of the children and like her manipulation for them even as an economic resource which yeah. is fucked up i kind of wish that was touched on a little bit more but like the way that the magician ends is perfect, right? But it also leaves a lot of questions unanswered. Chief among them, like, what the fuck is up with the kids? You know? Right. Like, I think the kids and the way that they're used 
specifically by the magician, means that immediately she is not sympathetic to anybody. Right. Because it's kind of fucked up. It's very fucked up. It, right. it definitely paints her... Everything Everything else in this world is very... We can be indifferent to or treats us indifferently, mm-hmm. like we were saying earlier. She is villainous. Mord is even indifferent. Mord's this element, elemental right. force. But she is evil. Yeah. And even, like, the Mord proxies, like, you can kind of make a comparison between the children and the Mord proxies, but the Mord proxies are still just part of this force of nature that is Mord, whereas mm-hmm. the children are... You can kind of, they're both the more proxies and the children, they're foot soldiers for their camp, right? And, but they were both birthed for a purpose. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. there's this weird bit where but, it's like the company created the Mord proxies and then the magician created the children. Like, there's, again, that same dichotomy right. that we've been talking about. But here's the question like, are the Mord proxies bears or are they like Mord? not a bear and were turned into a bear spoilers yeah. i know this is this is this is spoiler time <laughs> right but. that's a great question i assume that they were okay here's a fascinating assumption and i'm not saying that this is correct by any means but maybe the company was gradually turning the workers into more proxies and that's why there are so few people left as they gradually were transforming people mm-hmm. into more proxies which would make sense yeah. certainly based not on an answer what the company does and mm-hmm. how Mord was created specifically. But like, I also wouldn't put it past him to like just build bears out of whatever, you know, also could have done that. Yeah. There's yeah. no question there. I was just like, yeah. maybe, maybe to your point, maybe they, are all they don't talk about more proxies at all, actually in, in like where they come from specifically. No, they they seem they surmise that they maybe come from the company and that maybe they're created, but yeah, they're yeah. not sure. Like, there's... correct. You're you're right. They do say that they are created by the company. It's well, it's surmised. I yeah. it's not. It's never. Yeah. But it 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 doesn't necessarily say how they are created by the company, as right. opposed to you know, the magician's children. They you you're pretty sure. You're pretty sure. Yeah. I guess it doesn't necessarily say that the magician kidnaps children and performs bio changes on them and makes them into foot soldiers. But that is, but. yeah, that's kind of Occam's, Occam's razor, whatever that is. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Occam's razor where like the fewer assumptions you make, the more likely it is. Right. So yeah, to be fair, when I read it, I thought that they literally cut pieces off of Mord and that's what created Mord prophecies. And I know that's not correct. Because there's zero percent chance that that like Mord would allow that to happen, but it's fascinating. Again, that could work in a Miyazaki. Like that would totally yeah. be a Miyazaki. Yeah. But it would be like Born would be cutting the pieces off of himself and making the proxies in a Miyazaki. Right. Yeah. Right. He'd be cutting. He'd be like shaving himself. Yeah, and then they would yeah. flop off and become bears. Anyways. Okay. That's so... one fun thing at the end of the book, by the way, is that the Mord proxies just like make a village. Right, right. Star. Some of them are feral, but most of the rest like get along and they yeah. revert to being bears. So, yeah. but like communal bears, which is interesting. Yeah. So it, it seems literally like they make a village, if I remember correctly. Yeah. But okay, so we go into the company. We, we want to hit the end here. We're gonna cool. hit the hit the end part of the story. God, we yeah. Go we go into will. the company. We go into the company, 
And so we, we have this fascinating escape, of course, that happens from the balcony cliffs. They get chased mm-hmm. out. There's this incredible conflict. We figure out later that the magician's responsible for it all and, like, scenting and, like, leading them in because she knew the whole time where they were. One um, thing that's interesting that I found in that escape, so there's bears in their, in their area. But yep. they said later that they – one thing – they said later in this bit of foreshadowing that they had heard the bears burrowing up up on top of balcony cliffs. Yes. And they said in the book, I don't know if this is for sure or not, but that they had sat there and listened and listened to where they went in the in the balcony cliffs to figure out where the traps were. So I don't actually know if it's the magician that let the bears into balcony cliff. The magician claims to have scented them in that final scene. Like, mm. the magician claims to have done it. So, maybe not. I guess I probably should have read the back though, again. It seems as though it was in that in the couple of final moments with the magician. So. Okay. Anyway, so she, yes, they... She reveals that she did a lot of things. Yeah. They were, they were forced to leave Balcony Cliffs by these bears. They escape to the... Do they call it a cistern? Yes. The cistern. They escape to the cistern, and then they go to the company, and there's bears. Two bears, specifically. Yes, two specific bears. One that's just chilling at the bottom of the pool, by the way. Right, right, and somehow survived the, like, chew-em-up pool. This is, these are the fascinating moments of horror, again, like, and it's it's not even horror, right? But it's, like, it's Mm. spooky moments where Jeff ratchets up the tension and we get an understanding of like what's going on and how they're being chased and everything else. Mm -hmm. So thinking about the time through the company, we've got obviously as mentioned kind of the horrible moments with the bears and the pools and kind of the way that they show up instead of the company. But we also have the sort of the climb through the company in which Rachel is drained of all energy. Wick is almost useless. And we find out at the end here, of course, that she knew all of Wick's secrets and still carried him and still did mm-hmm. all of this stuff. Which is, you know, she never, I don't think she ever says in the entire book that she loves him, but this is fascinating proof that she does. You know what I mean? Like, she, yeah. love is only ever said in, to Born directly. And even when Born confronts her about Wick, she doesn't say it. And so, or sorry, excuse me, when Born is Wick, she doesn't mm-hmm. say that she loves him. Wick. Because I do a fascinating believe that moment. Born Wick does ask specifically if she loves Wick. Yeah, right, right. Which, exactly. So to, And to she that says, point, why the fuck are you asking me, basically? <laughs> right, right. And and she's, she never, she, I, I don't think, if, I'm, if I remember correctly, she never says I love you specifically to Wick in any of those moments. Yeah. But this is clear proof of deep, profound love yeah and like can't live without which i guess is love but like not even being able to fathom living without somebody you know mm-hmm. one thing that i want to like roll back real quick is yeah one one element that i really liked is when they saw the bear out on before they got into the cave the crack the canyon whatever they saw the bear out there and there's like that bear's gonna be here in 10 minutes right and i really like that because it gave us a sense of like how long it was gonna take and it also was like 
turning over an hourglass of like this is how much time you have guys you know and so it was like it wasn't necessarily horror but it was like kind of because it's just like you knew what was coming you know how long it's gonna take it might get here and kill you regardless so yeah I, I i just really liked kind of how it specified that anyways and then yeah the crack I'm incre- I'm extremely claustrophobic. I didn't like that at all. I yeah, it's it's pretty insane. I'm not extremely claustrophobic, but I'm a little bit. If if for a prolonged period of time, you know, yeah. like for my, for me, it's like I can sit in a small space for a little bit, but right. if I have to be there for a long time, I'm gonna be yeah neurotic about it. Yeah. So then they get into the into the building which is the first time we actually see the company, right? Like the what yes. the company is now. Right. So, which I thought was interesting. I wish we could have gotten a little bit more about it. It kind of reminded me of, it's going to sound really dumb, but like Portal. Kind of, like, yeah. You're in this like this lab, this like office, this whatever, and something terrible has happened and you don't necessarily know exactly what. <laughs> So right, you're unaware of of the specifics of the goings on. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, the especially because for a lot of the book, the company was like built up as like this big bad boogeyman, and then you get in there and there's like nothing. Again, I I think what's so fun about the the company, and we we talked about kind of the indifference of the world, but it's sort of the the malevolence of. I don't want to say like normalcy, but like the malevolence of something that appears or feels normal to you, right? Like the this idea that we've become so complacent, I think. So it's it's this sort of indifference and complacence that gradually elevated the company to this stasis in which it could be this dominant force inside of the city. That's yeah. that's how I think about it. It's like it's it is literally just a company of people, but it's like a company of people that have had you know, gradually their morals scrubbed away about how they think about things. And like, they've just, they've always strived for quote more quote, but what is more, it's just more is just different at this point. And I guess for a lot of the book, the company itself has been secondary to Mord. Yes. Which at this time, by the way, Bourne is a giant bear and he's fighting Mord. Kaiju fight straight up Godzilla versus King Kong. Literally like like, out of Pacific Rim right now. Right. But yeah, they're so, just wailing on each other. Yeah, right. So that's kind of what happens the entire time we're in the we're in the company. But I always expected like outside of Born the company to actually be dangerous in some way, and it's really not. Once you get in there, it's just there's not a whole lot there at all. You know, I I I think that's kind of what I'm trying to poke at is like there's something. Like it's it's intended to be this like vast evil, but in fact mm-hmm. it's like it's a bunch of micro decisions that made it a bad thing. If that yeah. makes sense, like it's it, it never the company never intended to do massive wrong. Mm-hmm. It's just that everything accumulated to a point in which it became wrong. Yeah, if that makes sense. Like it's that's like Jurassic Park. <laughs> yes, entirely, entirely. I, I get a very similar kind of element from a lot of michael crichton works here i think prey is more apt but yeah still yeah yeah and then there's a bunch of confusing stuff on the bat when we hit the end of the book here well there's a bunch of stuff that throws our perceptions correct and into the wind which is why i i had 100 percent meant to read like the last like 
40-ish pages of this book again, and I just didn't get the chance to, unfortunately, because there's just so much that happens in the back part of this between entering the the company and leaving the company. There's yep. a lot that happens that, like, make that changes everything. Where do you want to start? My timeline is going to be a little bit skewed, but and we've kind of already talked about it, but the Wick revelation is major. Right. We need to talk about the foxes. Yep. And we got to I want to talk about the door. Okay. All right. Those are kind of three very important things <coughs> because Let's start with the foxes. They're obviously biotech. Okay. They have cloaking if I remember correctly. Yeah, well, or blinking. Yes. They kind of dissolve. Yeah. We're not yeah. sure. Do because they cloak? Do they fade? Do they, they go, disappear? They they disappear when you know they disappear on you so i guess i always assumed that it was uh cloaking similar to what the magician can do which is kind of where she got her cloak sure right that they were similar but there's definitely something else about them that i haven't figured out yet they're very important and i don't know why oh yeah so because mm-hmm. like they're they're a consistent theme throughout the entire book like they follow born all over the place they're kind of always following rachel as well i believe it first comes up after she finds born and then when we get to the the finale with the the magician they're all there so there's definitely something important with these foxes that i have not figured out yet yeah i mean there are a couple of things with the foxes that are pointed out within this book so i don't want to i don't want to try to like nail anything down for you because there is technically a short story and then dead astronauts but Mm, the foxes are important okay well all that i'm saying is the foxes aren't done yet but the foxes here are distributing the goods from the door from the portal right like they are taking the things and they're actually feeding the city so they are as opposed to being parasitic like everything else is they're actually acting like symbiotes to make sure that things make it out to everyone else they are trying to ensure that life survives beyond just Mord and otherwise. So they are actively working on behalf of the people, which is fascinating because they are actually advantageously good. Is that? Like they're, which is also why I think they support Mord. Or, sorry, not Mord, Born. Is that said in this book or is that part of the short story? It's neither the short story. It is said in this book. I do not remember that, but so it's, like it's I said, implied. I probably should have read... It's the implied. Back it the, yeah. the important part in the back 40 pages as it relates to the fox is they clearly dug tunnels and were clearly seeding the city with goods. Okay. I knew that That's they dug tunnels it. in there. Everything but else I didn't is connections. Make, I didn't, yeah, yeah, I didn't make the connection with the seeding yeah. the city. So I guess that makes sense. But yeah, they have. I guess I always assumed that they had cloaking. So. But yeah. The which, cloaking I guess, is its own thing that's kind of a question. Yeah. Yeah. But. but so foxes there's that which i guess the existence of the hall of mirrors the mirror room i forget exactly what she calls it she calls it the hall of mirrors the hall of mirrors yep i guess yep. that kind of answers the question about the door as well because the door to get down to the hall of mirrors has been as they said like expertly like cemented off like they do not want people to get down to the hall of mirrors which I'm assuming that's just because that's where the goods come into the city from. And so they didn't want, like, the company didn't want whatever to come in there. Am I correct? That's where the goods come into the city from, into the Hall of Mirrors. Yes, 
but I think one of them was open yet, right? There was one door. There's one silvery portal. I'm talking at the top of the stairwell. Before they get to the the infirmary. Yeah, okay. The door at the yep. top of the stairwell has yeah. what they said was expertly like cemented off. Yes, that and is they had definitely get, cemented off. Yeah, right. and they had to get in through a uh, like a grate or something. Yes, yeah, for sure. So, obviously, somebody knew what was down there, and somebody didn't want people to get to it. Right. Or they right. didn't want whatever was coming from elsewhere to get out. We we are approaching fun territory of where I have more information than you have. Great. So I cannot fully All right. talk about it. Let's... But, Let's no, I, I mean, you are welcome to interrogate it because I think that's fun and I will not spoil because that's kind of the nature of the show on the regular Adam. God. But Okay, so I'm going to be PJ yep. for a moment. <laughs> you are now PJ. I am now PJ, apparently. So, yeah, because they make a really big deal about how that was literally like about how it was closed off, how that how that door at the top was closed off. Yes. Well, now I think that they don't want things to get out because, as it says in there, there's more borns. That's one of the big things, one of the big, I guess, revelations in this final chapter is that there's just a box full of borns. A hundred borns. Yeah, and what what the far-off company, whatever was sending them, what they wanted these borns to do. Because we know what born can do, right? You know, Born can eat and absorb and destroy as much as he wants to. What, so what can a hundred right. do, you know? Right. Maybe whoever right. closed off the door up top knew that whatever was sending them things maybe wasn't perfectly benevolent. And they knew that to, something was that was going to happen. To extrapolate on this a little bit, I think it's, it's fascinating to think that they thought sending a hundred Borns into this world was good without thinking that it might not wipe out everything. So, like, I think of Born in, not Born the creature, but Born the organism that could be this this box of the extra Borns, right? These vase-like plants. Mm. They're like sampling organisms. And so they're, they were to be sent out to, like, sample this other universe and then return with information on it, if that makes sense. Like, they're, that like, in a way, sense. they're they're consuming a universe or like a, a world or like whatever's on the other side but they're also returning all of that biomass a and then b they're also coming back with all the information about what was there at one point because they don't lose anything they retain everything yeah that starts getting into really like out there sci-fi territory right because so far this book is very grounded in reality heavy in air quotes, quotes. Yeah. Heavy air quotes. We have a flying bear, but still, <laughs> most of this book is is fairly grounded in reality. There's like two outliers, and it's Morden Born, right? That like can't be explained by the current world. So, I mean, I mean, what, in, in some things are a stretch, but like, yeah, you know, they're not crazy. What you're saying makes so much sense in terms of like, because yeah, what does Born do best? Born absorbs and Born retains. So, like, maybe what he was born to do was he he very well could be just gathering supplies for elsewhere. Like, whoever was on the other side of this company tunnel was like, we don't care about that city. Let's take everything that we can and bring it back here, and then we can use it. It's effectively 
advanced scavenging using right. biotech but i don't know maybe we'll learn more when we read dead astronauts that'll be interesting i'm gonna leave that company yeah. grenade right there yep. um we don't need to talk about cold. it anymore we've got we'll get to it eventually we got we got somebody who got hit in the head with a rock that we got to talk about quick we do we do we definitely want to talk about the absolute murder of the magician but i think that we should before we talk about that talk about Wick's letter comes after that, doesn't it? But it impacts the story before, before. that. So, so Wick's letter technically comes before. Because Rachel reads it before she murders Yes. Her, the and magician. immediately before she murders the magician, she says something effective. The magician, like, mis, misthought of one, misunderstood yeah. one thing. I had already read the letter, yeah. basically. Right. And so, yeah, the letter was... Like I said, these last 40 pages are just, like, so many bomb drops all at once. Like, also, right. the, the like, magician's murder scene is one of my favorite scenes. It's, it's so good. it's what, like, everybody says to do with, like, the evil villains is just, like, kill them while they're literally. monologuing. Kill and them that's while they're monologuing. Literally what she does. Yeah. It, it is, it is that trope to a T. Like, it's, it's the... It is the execution of that expectation on the yeah. trip to a T. I, I have it right here. I bookmarked oh, it me. specifically because I love it. The magician was still talking. The magician in that cavern was still trying to tell me things. Why I should join her. What this all meant. How the city could be saved from itself. But I heard no more from her. I hit the magician with a rock until she was dead. And the animals did nothing to stop me. Yeah. It's just like, I just <laughs> hit the magician with a rock. Like that. And just like that. Like, there's there's a little bit more there, but it's never like, she doesn't like beat her into the ground. It's it's nothing else. It's just like, I beat her until she stopped talking. Like Yeah. And then later she's just like, I'm sure that she'll rot in the, in the, in the bowels of the company or something to the effect yeah. of that. And just like, I don't care anymore. She's dead. Bye-bye. Right. Yep. God. That, and that's it's such a fun so scene. It's it's wild because it it passes so quickly. Like mm -hmm. it is it is so to your point. Like it is literally, it's yeah. what everyone wants in every movie ever. Like it is it is the definition of like shut them up before they talk. Yeah. Or while they're talking. And um, like, if you beautiful. consider, we we talked earlier about the triangle that we have, and like the two quote unquote villains, more than the magician. Mord, like, is forever. Like, the Mord fight takes literally, like... Of hours. Hours. And the Magician yeah. is just done. Like, mm -hmm. the Magician is all of, like, five pages. And the Mord fight is probably close to 50 when it starts to yeah. when it ends. You know, right. it's, like, not all 50 pages are, you know, talking specifically about the Mord fight. I think... The Mord fight only has itself like a page and a half, but right. still in the general time frame, it's just a, such a fun difference between the two of them. Because yeah, it's just so much fun. The the magician that was one of my favorite things the first time I read this this gosh darn book is the 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 magician's end. Just like come on, just hit her with a rock. Like it it just it feels so right in every way, you know. Like I. I appreciated this endlessly. And you're just like expecting <sighs> this big showdown because 
like the magician has been such such a big character, like doing right. things behind the scenes, like being an adversary to Mord, and you're expecting like he's gonna have this invisible legion, and we're gonna have to like run away again. Yeah, you know, or like even if it's a one on one fight, it's gonna be like a cool like oh she goes invisible sometimes, we're gonna f- figure it out. Just like no, we're just gonna hit her with the rock while she's talking. Right, right. God, it's just put her it's down. So much fun. It's 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 so clever. Like it's. And by clever, I mean it's not clever on Rachel's part. It's very blunt, of course, yeah. and, you know, generally otherwise. But from Jeff's perspective, it's just like sometimes the villains just need to shut the fuck up mm-hmm. because, like, you're not really a villain. Like, you're just a fucking person. Again, yeah. it's that indifference of the world. Like, no one gives a shit about what you're saying or what you're doing mm-hmm. so long as someone else can stop or, like, take advantage of whatever's going on. Yeah. I don't know. There's there's this interesting, like, grim dark nature to it that I, I adore. And it's a really good, like... Because I believe it's after that that she says something to the effect of like she says something to the effect of like so she give you yeah she page. doesn't know like what the magician doesn't know is that I read the letter right Let's yeah see. so here it is and she couldn't know one other secret I had already read Wick's letter so really you could say that the magician never had a chance yeah <laughs> it's just like so it's like bam that's so much fun because I believe immediately after that is when we go into what was actually in the letter correct. Yes. Yeah. Then we go into the letter. Yeah, because... Which we should you, talk about. Yeah, you know how I talked very early in this podcast about how I don't like exposition being thrown at me? It's okay at the end. It's okay, yeah, right, to give context, to provide context yeah. to everything else. Because that's what it's, Wick's it's letter acceptable. is. Is Wick's letter is, okay, here are all of the answers that maybe you didn't catch when you were reading through. Right. It's like... Or that you didn't piece together. Yeah. Did, did you ever read Encyclopedia Brown? Yes, right. It's when you can flip to the end. Yep. It's like it gives you all of the answers. It actually doesn't give you all the answers, to be fair. There's there's things in Wick's letter that you probably wouldn't have grabbed. Right. But it fills in a lot of the gaps, you know, that it makes a lot of things make sense. So... Yeah, I, I think there are a couple of things that I think are important to touch on here. One we talked about earlier, it's the fact that Wick is an, is not a person, but is biotech, is effectively a clone, like we've mm-hmm. been talking about this whole time, which again gets to that, like, Android loving people, the question, like, can an Android love? Obviously, an Android, Android can love. An Android can care so much that they stop another a person, a, a, another another biotech which I, it feels so weird to like even talk about these in, in context because you can just get down to this very base level but to prevent someone else from killing themselves and to then live a very fruitful life with with someone else and like everything else it, it this this letter is so brutal and poignant in a lot of ways where it's like you know what <clears throat> i took away bad memories and i'm very sorry about it and i live with that ghost daily but at the same time i live with the fear that you might understand that i am not the person that you expected and in fact i'm not a person at all to begin with just there's so many confounding points here it throws like everything else into like it sharpens up the rest of the book where like you can see why certain decisions were made and why certain things were like withheld and things like that you know Mm -hmm. so when the memory beetles become so poignant because it was like this big deal that he was this drug dealer at the beginning and like mm. why why oh people need memory beetles so they they can forget they can erase bad things everything else mm. it's just like it is that Chekhov's gun that lives with you throughout the entire story and then pays off in this grandiose moment and you're like 
how did I not think about the fact that the main character might want to lose her memories? Like, how did I not consider the fact? Yeah. Well, there was nothing necessarily... I guess there was. There there were indications in the story that she might have gaps in her memory. But because we go back to other, like, other things she remembers, right? We know all about, you know... Well, she blocks out her parents' death, right? And so it's like, oh, you're forgetting this because you're selectively, like, trying to not remember it. Right. Like, that makes sense. Yeah. But now we know that she... It's not that she's not trying to remember it. It's because she can't... She, at this point, physically cannot remember those things. And, like, the one thing that really got to me this time that I didn't catch the first time is that Wick sold those memories to the magician. Specifically, yeah. Right. Because... The memories that she has were, and how she got there, the magician would want to know because she doesn't know where those things are coming from, right? From mm-hmm. wherever else. And we, of course, now also don't know. But that is so valuable to the magician because she, knowledge is power to her, especially this right. knowledge, because she wants to effectively take over for the company, destroy the company, whatever. And so knowing where so rachel was sent from the company as effectively scavenge to the city right right and so she would remember how she kind of got into those situations and so she has inside knowledge of the company that's valuable to the magician that's it in addition it's leverage over wick like that's the other thing is that it's leverage over Wick and his decision, because she was a member of the company and had leverage inside of the company. Like she was, mm-hmm. she was a part of that. But right. there is, there was another element that I was thinking of. Holy shit! Did it did it vanish? Oh no! Relating to Rachel, the company, the parents, the memory. Oh fuck. Okay. Anyway, to hmm. By the time we reach the end of this story, by the time we reach the end of Wick's letter, we get this understanding of him as this android, of Rachel as this person of whom didn't want to live anymore, of kind of a a number of different components as they plug into their, their personality and whatnot. I am perpetually kind of fascinated by this letter because it it reveals so much about the construction of things within the company as well and the way that that it kind of turned and the way that like mord was a person and that is one of my favorite twists by the way in this whole book is that like wick was friends with mord the human right but wick was an android that worked on mord to turn him into a bear you know, did, like did he work on it? I thought that he wasn't par- on that project. I thought that he just like sat with him. I you you're right. You're right that he witnessed him become a bear. But they used his research on the fish on lady. The fish. Yes. In order to turn Mord into a bear. Right. Yeah. Yep. Literally the the revelation that Mord was a person. <clears throat> Sorry, the confirmation that Mord was a person. Right was is one of my favorite parts of this book it just drives you up a wall because you're like what really was going on like and it gets it it gets back to the core question of like what is what makes a human like what is humanity a lot of it is like what 
were they trying to achieve through this right. you know right was were they can were they creating more into a weapon did they want to control the city you know there's a lot of questions there which right. might be answered next time in dead astronauts i don't know if it is don't answer i don't answer no answers Good. to anything i don't want to know yeah no i i would not do that to you but, you know team no hype that's right. sort of my general vague comments i'm not expecting any answers to anything clearly again my only thing with dead astronauts is try to book enough time to read it straight through try to oh yeah that's Um, my that's one of my major flaws is that i like to read books in one sitting which is why i don't read as much as i used to because it's very difficult to find time to do that right this is a book that almost demands it and don't feel bad if you have to go backwards that's the other thing. Anyway. I will try to read um, it twice probably before we do it. You might need to. Okay. We we are we're hitting the end of this. We're hitting yeah. the end of the book. We've we've touched on a number of the topics. We've touched on the giant reveals mm-hmm. of Rachel's backstory, of her parents' death, of a number of things. Is there anything else that you can think of that we haven't talked about yet? Outside of maybe the the final denouement that happens with the kind of community that forms at the very end of the novel. We've touched on kind of the deus ex machina that was the his sickness and the pills, right? Yeah, it doesn't feel deus ex. What, what, what feels deus ex about it to you? It kind of feels like something that was simply put there to make them go to the company a little bit. Oh, it's more of a MacGuffin. I would MacGuffin, it yeah, 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 yeah. But then, like immediately afterwards, they're just like, "Oh, he figured out how to make his own pills." Bye-bye. It took him four months, but yeah. Yeah, but I guess that's technically past the climax, so I guess I can forgive that. We don't necessarily yeah. need all of that answers, but... Right. Yeah. But No, I think we really... I'm sure we didn't touch on everything. We could probably keep going There's for another no hour way. and a half, two hours, yeah. you know, in order to, be to honest, really talk about everything. We talked about how good the prose is, but we never, we didn't really highlight the pros in those kind of high moments Um, yeah that's fair and that's not something we're going to do but of course the recommendation is reread the book like it's beautiful this this is an incredible novel actually real quick can we talk about something as in how the born mord fight ends oh yeah the the, like flattening and like absorption yeah so like born transforms into a copy of mord Mm -hmm. and he goes off and he's like hey mord come at me right yeah and so that happens before they enter the the company and then when they leave the company is when the end of this fight happens so and like that this is when i said that there's like that page and a half of more born fight yeah and so like born loses as mord he has to give up his mord shape and then he basically becomes a manta ray, for lack of a better term. He becomes a massive flat pancake. Mord is like, this is a sign of weakness. He goes for the attack, and then Born, like Santa's gift bag, comes around him and then disappears him. They said there's a flash of light, and then they're both gone. But I think that this is an example of 
what Bourne was already doing to like children and things like that, like the children that attacked, not just random children, but maybe some random children we don't really know. But to the kids that like attacked Rachel at the beginning, I, I think that ultimately his attack wasn't so much. It's kind of horrifying if you think about it, but it wasn't like he became like a squid hat and like chomped down on their brains. I think that he yeah. was ultimately more like a rug that then like formed up around and pulled down and like yeah. became one and then did it again and then did it again because it's more of a a coalescence to some degree, like pulling everything yeah. in. And like at the end of this fight, Rachel finds Bourne again, but he yes. is small vase himself. Mm-hmm. And they put him on the balcony, and he doesn't do anything. Right. Like, I'm going to be honest with you. I expected at some point in this book there to be, like, an indication that he moved or something. Like, mm. oh, sometimes we find him on the other side of the balcony. Or, like, when I wasn't looking, you know, he teetered or something like that. I was expecting something like that, and it didn't happen. And I was very pleased of that. I like when my expectations are subverted in pleasant ways. It's it's a great it's a great bit because it, it also says that Bourne is okay with just being there and observing. Mm-hmm. Like it's 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 this moment of like he he had this hunger, this perpetual hunger that he couldn't satiate no matter how many people or whatever he did. And finally the biggest hunger of all, the thing that he was sent back for, he eats more and he, he feels satisfied and at the same time as his satisfaction, he's reduced down to the smallest thing, his original form. That's an incredibly good point that I did not think about, that he might just be satisfied after eating Mord. I don't I I don't want to say that it's just like he is done, like that was that was his goal mission, but I do right. want to at the very least say like he set the status quo, mm-hmm. he established a status quo, and that is enough for him as an individual, as a person, to be like, okay, I can be happy having helped everyone that I loved and more. I was more talking about like he consumed enough volume. Oh, sure. That he yes, was yeah, to... like no longer hungry. Right. And didn't necessarily need to consume more because Mord is massive, as we talked about at the top. I hadn't considered that. I was thinking about it a little bit more metaphorically. Right. Yeah. Which makes much more sense. But Mord is very large. And Born is also ate very him. big. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, he was eating, like, if you eat a person a day, how many people equals Mord? Right. A lot. There was, there was kind of a question there. Yeah. <sighs> so. All right. And then, so there's the fight, and then they make a society, basically. Right. The end yeah. of the book is basically like, hey, what if we didn't do everything that we were doing before to each other? Yeah. Fingers like They eliminated the two biggest threats in the city. And then they just started, they just made a village. And let me tell you, that felt so good. After all it does of feel the, good. Yeah. After all of the literal indifference, having like... Positive catharsis. Like yes. Yeah. Catharsis, that is the correct word. It's just like, we got to let go of the negative emotions that we had and like the tension mm-hmm. that we as readers built up worried for these characters and the characters got to like live good lives and just like they got to start rebuilding and they were just like to be fair the rain was kind of bullshit going to be honest with you the there was like 3 days of rain that was just like everything greened up magically oh basically. that the, was the f- okay and the ponds overflowed and all of the good biotech went into the city 
so I don't think that that was bullshit from my perspective. That is the accumulation of Born eating Mord and then giving himself back. It's it's that recycling yes. nature element again. You know what I mean? Like it's still bullshit. Okay. Fine. In terms of like story beats. Sure. That one a hundred percent felt like a Deus Ex though. I don't I don't know that it's Deus Ex. I think that it's, it's just it's not. I'm I am not using Deus Ex correctly, but it still yeah. felt a little bit contrived and it felt a little bit That's fair. out there. Where it's like, it, it, all it of a sudden, convenient. the rain fell, yeah. and everything was fine, <laughs> you know? Right. Which, but to be fair... But conveniently, there's a sequel and a half, so... Yeah. And to be fair, after everything we went through, we definitely deserve that. We deserve sure. the good rain, and we deserve everything good happening. So, but yeah. it's yeah. The end of the book, I, I enjoyed quite a bit, because there's just so many books that's like, ha-ha, they won, but now they're dead or whatever and i'm like no no, yeah. no just give me the good ending it's like when i beat breath of the wild the first time all i wanted to do was run around a post ganon hyrule and see everybody happy and there's no monsters and you know what it doesn't let me do that i can't think of any like big open world game that ends that way no i'm sure it doesn't but let me tell you i would feel really good if yeah cool we should all probably right. be done Man, anything else? Anything else that you have on this book? It's not but that long. There's just so it's much in crazy. this book. There's so much right. in this book. And I'm so excited. You said there's a short story? There is. Strange Bird. Okay, so I should tackle that. Story. Should I tackle yep. that before Dead Astronauts? Yes. Okay. Because we got Dead Astronauts um, we coming up in Run Crockley. We won't, we won't cover it necessarily, but right. we may like talk about it at the very beginning or if it's relevant. So, yeah but it's uh, it seems like good reading before dead astronauts so it is in some ways necessary and in some ways answers some questions yeah. in this book that you may have the strange bird is even referenced instead of this book a couple of times it seems that's to be true they, they do talk about the strange bird uh, like twice yeah. yep there are a number of small things that were referenced in this book that i didn't realize were full ass things in the other story but yeah. that'll be exciting there's a ton of stuff that we just didn't touch on in this book because we don't have the time. But. My God, you could talk about this book for hours and yeah. hours and it's hours just, and Everything hours. means something, which is nice. It's fascinating. It's brilliant. It's yeah. layered beautifully. I love this story. And yeah. to anyone who doesn't like it, I still like you, but I Try question your taste. Yeah. Try it again. Cool. All right. Well, Adam, where can people find you on the internet if they want to follow um, you, support you, otherwise? I thank you so much for doing this, by the way, of course, you know, coming on and doing the short part with me. PJ might read it eventually. He may join us for Dead Astronauts if he can catch up. God. But I did want to cover this. I've wanted desperately to cover this since we started the show in general. I think I've been talking to you about this literally for a year and a half. Yeah. It's so, Yeah. We've been talking about this for a very long time. Yeah. Anytime you want me to come on, if you want a book to be read and PJ doesn't want to read it, I am. I, I loved this book and. Pretty much anything sci-fi, I, I will tackle. I, my, I've made a goal to read a lot of like the classic sci-fi. So I recently read iRobot and things like that. Mm. So I'm very excited. So, but about me, I stream every Wednesday on Twitch.tv/slash Another Castle. The O is a zero. You can find me at on Twitter at Another underscore Castle with the O is a zero with the underscore in there. Follow that. Yeah. I will, apparently, according to Crossland, we will have my other podcast on the main feed at some point that we record. We will, yes. 
yep. six months ago the speculative knowledge i think it was speculative knowledge yeah it was a speculative knowledge yeah so that'll be out fun. whenever that show comes out i think we're aiming for late june now fun. for when so. that releases or for when the episodes start to release i should say but yeah. you can also find me on the words and whiskey uh discord which you can get to how via patreon.com thank you so much for mentioning that patreon.com forward slash words and whiskey it's great we've got a number of different things going on there we greatly appreciate everyone's support including adams and otherwise and you know i it, it it's so fantastic to be able to like spend time and talk about these books that we like really care about and everything else but i'm also very grateful not only for the ears that i'm talking into right now but for the voices that i hear back inside of the community that we've we've kind of grown so it's it's pretty it's pretty neat i don't know yeah i, I dig it it's pretty neat it's a cool group like i've been it's one of my favorite things to check like every day is the discord is just like i always have it up at work too it's just like chatting with people and whatnot about yeah. just our lives and stuff and and the the shows that are coming out it's it's cool so yeah yeah beyond that you can obviously find me at any of the awards and whiskey shows you can also find me on wednesdays for the most part with playing games with adam so That's like true. if you're if you're looking for something, again, the link to Adam's Twitch will be inside of this episode. We're playing so, Tiny Tina's Wonderlands right now. We are. We it's are. It's a grand old Although time. Although I don't think we're doing it this Wednesday. I think somebody's got to I don't think we are. We're do probably that. doing either Overwatch or... Something else. We'll, we'll figure it out. Follow yeah. the Twitter. So thank you so much again for listening to the show. Be sure to check out our social media, as previously mentioned. We've got a lot coming out on Atomic Pylon Media's network. Here we've got Tales of Kana. We've got, of course, the short pours that you're listening to right now, Regular Words and Whiskey, Hellerpod, as well as the two bonus shows that were previously Patreon exclusives. Next month, PJ and I are going to be tackling Elantris, potentially with a special guest, Elantris by Brandon Sanderson, his first novel. Adam, we're going to slot in your episode somewhere randomly instead of short pours whenever you read Dead Astronauts. So, like, because we, we have it, we have our months booked. Mm-hmm. So it's going to be like a bonus one inside of the thing. Cool. So whenever it works out, we'll do it. It might be June. It might be July. So for folks at home who liked this, just read it and be prepared mm-hmm. in the next two or three months. I'm down whenever. So I yeah. just got to well, read God. it. I know. I got to sit down and like <laughs> re-explore that mind fuck. I, I thought about doing it today again just because I like wanted to, but I was like, I don't want to bring anything up that might be you know, yeah. problematic. I'm very so, excited to to explore some more of this universe, actually. Yes, so. it, it'll be a lot of fun. I think you'll really like Strange Bird. Then I assume you'll like Dead Astronauts. But with that, also make sure that you check out all the links in the show notes. Again, you can find links to Adam's Twitch, Twitter, and otherwise inside of the show notes. You can find our scheduled Patreon previous episodes, our websites, and socials all in one convenient spot. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and Reddit at Words Whiskey Pod. If you want to send us an email with any kind of comments or anything like that, wordsandwhiskeyshow at gmail.com or patreon.com forward slash wordsandwhiskey. Other than that, leave us a review on your favorite podcatcher. And if you aren't already subscribed to the Short Pours, make sure that you subscribe. Make sure that you leave a review. All right, thank you you so much for the support. Yeah, you can hear more of Adam and more things. Thank you again so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. I had a blast.